Lucifer News Lightbringer presents The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire The Sacred Order of Green Zombies Part 4 The Zodiac Children of Garth the Green Hey there, friends, patrons, fellow mythical astronomers. It is your starry host, LML. And I'm here with a very special episode, one which exists outside the confines of any normal compendium. Once a long time ago, when I created the Patreon page for the Mythical Astronomy and named my top-tier patrons after the 12 constellations of the Zodiac, I promised an episode explaining how George was using the constellations in the story. Well... I am here today to fulfill my holy oath, sworn in the sight of gods and men, to pay homage to those stalwart patrons known as the earthly avatars of the Twelve Houses of Heaven. So many stars, he thought, as he trudged up the slope through pines and firs and ash. Maester Lewin had taught him his stars as a boy in Winterfell. He had learned the names of the Twelve Houses of Heaven and the rulers of each. He could find the Seven Wanderers sacred to the faith. He was old friends with the Ice Dragon, the Shadow Cat, the Moon Maid, and the Sword of the Morning. All those he shared with a grit, but not some of the others. We look up at the same stars and see such different things. The King's Crown was the Cradle to hear her tell it. The Stallion was the Horned Lord. The Red Wanderer that Septons preached was sacred to their smith, up here was called the Thief. And when the Thief was in the Moon Maid, that was a propitious time for a man to steal a woman, Igrit insisted. Like the night you stole me, the thief were bright that night. All right, so this scene from A Storm of Swords that Emma just read shows us that Jon Snow has a fairly decent knowledge of the stars. And, of course, it's easy to figure that when he speaks of the twelve houses of heaven and the rulers of each, he's not only uh, speaking of the... Uh, that he is speaking, in fact, of the twelve zodiac constellations, the rulers, uh, and also of the idea that each constellation rules a section or zone of the sky along the path of the ecliptic, which would be the house, the houses of the zodiac. I'm sure you've heard that, that phrase. So this is a detailed explanation of the function of the zodiac as a naming convention, in other words, which helps us to come to the definitive conclusion that the zodiac is indeed what he's talking about here. There really, there's, no, there's nothing else he can be talking about. It's definitely the zodiac. So unfortunately, we don't really get any other information on these 12 houses in the series proper. But then, we got the world of ice and fire. In fact, this episode will also double as a great example of one of the many reasons why the world of ice and fire is far, far more than the typical world book or coffee table book that we often see in fantasy. The world of ice and fire is actually packed with puzzles and symbolism and clues about very important mysteries in the main plot. And there's one in particular that is specifically based on the Zodiac. It's a single page. It's page 208, to be exact, which contains a sidebar that takes up about 90% of the page. And it's called Some Celebrated Children of Garth Greenhand. As you might guess, there are 12 children listed, although one of those children is actually a pair of twins, which, spoiler alert, will be Gemini. 
John the Oak, the first knight, who brought chivalry to Westeros. A huge man, all agree, eight feet tall in some tales, ten or twelve feet tall in others, sired by Garth Greenhand on a giantess. His own descendants became the oak hearts of Old Oak. Gilbert of the Vines, who taught the men of the arbour to make sweet wine from the grapes that grew fat and lush across their island, and who founded House Redwine. Floris the Fox, the cleverest of Garth's children, who kept three husbands, each ignorant of the existence of the others. From their sons sprang House Florent, House Ball, and House Peak. Maris the Maid, the most fair, whose beauty was so renowned that fifty lords vied for her hand at the first tournay ever to be held in Westeros. The victor was the grey giant, Argoth's stone-skin, but Maris wed King Uthor of the High Tower before he could claim her, and Argoth spent the rest of his days raging outside the walls of Old Town, roaring for his bride. Foss the archer, renowned for shooting apples off the head of any maid who took his fancy, from whom both the red apple and green apple fossways trace their descent. Brandon of the Bloody Blade, who drove the giants from the reach and warred against the children of the forest, slaying so many at Blue Lake that has been known as Red Lake ever since. Owen Oakenshield, who conquered the Shield Island, driving the Selkies and Merlings back into the sea. Harlan the Hunter and Herndon of the Horn, twin brothers who built their castle atop Horn Hill, and took to wife the beautiful woods witch who dwelled there, sharing her favours for a hundred years, for the brothers did not age so long as they embraced her whenever the moon was full. Bors the Breaker, who gained the strength of twenty men by drinking only bull's blood, and founded House Bulwer of Black Crown. Some tales claim Bors drank so much bull's blood he grew a pair of shiny black horns. Rose of Red Lake, a skin changer able to transform into a crane at will, a power some say still manifests from time to time in the women of House Crane, her descendants. Ellen Eversweet, the girl who loved honey so much she sought out the king of the bees in his vast mountain hive and made a pact with him, to care for his children and his children's children for all time. She was the first beekeeper and the mother to House Beesbury. Rowan Goldtree, who was so bereft when her lover left her for a rich rival, that she wrapped an apple in her golden hair, planted it upon a hill, and grew a tree whose bark and leaves and fruit were gleaming yellow gold, and to whose daughters the Rowans of Goldengrove traced their roots. You know how I feel when I opened this up? I was like, oh look, there's twelve of them. I wonder who they could be. And then you start looking at it, and at a glance, several of these do appear to have obvious correlations to zodiac signs. We've got a pair of twins, which would probably be Gemini, Boris the Breaker, who drank bull's blood and then uh, and founded House Bullworth, that would be Taurus. Maris the Most Fair Maid, it was probably Virgo the Virgin. Foss the Archer, probably Sagittarius, who is a centaur with a bow and arrow. But after that, it's less obvious. Uh, Gilbert of the Vines, who founded House Redwine, could be Aquarius. The Water Bearer, if you turn the water into wine. But there's no fox in the Zodiac, there's no crane, no beekeepers, no gold trees, and... Where do you even start with John the Oak, Owen Oakenshield, or Brandon of the Bloody Blade? I imagine many people saw this list of 12 colorful characters and thought Zodiac. But since it appears to kind of peter out after five or six correlations, I imagine, you know, nobody wrote any theories about it. Well, today we are going to do the detective work and figure this thing out. Additional clues can be gleaned from scenes in the books which involve either a character from a given house descended of Garth, 
or symbolism that relates a character to a sigil of one of these houses, and also by diving a little deeper into the mythology behind each zodiac sign. That's what we're about to do, guys. We'll start with uh, some of the more obvious ones, and we'll work our way to the more cryptic ones, including the one everyone wants to hear about, Brandon of the Bloody Blade. Uh, Today we are only going to do the first six, however, uh, because it just, uh, as I dove deeper and deeper, it just got deeper and deeper, and I did six of them, and I had a full essay. We've got a very full essay today, so we'll do six, and then we'll do six more in a future time. So first, uh, I would like to quickly say thank you to a few new priests of Starry Wisdom who uh, stepped up their patron level recently, which I always appreciate. Uh, we've got Jojo Lady Dane, the Twilight Star, the Born Mouth, the daughter of the Frost Giants, and official secret keeper of Starry Wisdom. We've got Christine of House Dane, the helmswoman of the Cinnamon Wind. Uh, Molly Anissa, keeper of the Moonsinger's Law. There's another longtime patron. She might be a two-year patron. I'm not sure. I have to double-check, but she's close. Uh, John O'Blackheel of House Thompson, wielder of a Valerian steel tray of fish food and Kraken tacos. So, um, and so thank you to those four patrons. And, uh, of course, I'll be reading some other new patrons today, as well as the official Zodiac patrons. Uh, And one of the first things to understand about the Zodiac constellations is that all of them, except Libra, the scales, are either animals or people who were placed in the heavens in honor of some some deed that they did before they died. That's a lot of Ds. Uh, They are memorials to dead people and animals, in other words, ones who died bravely and heroically. And I'm speaking mostly in the context of Greek myth here. Uh, because Greek myths about the Zodiac are definitely the most well-known and definitive in terms of Western civilization, although it must be pointed out that we have thorough records of Sumerian astronomy incorporating the concept of the Zodiac and some of the same constellations we use today. And there's actually a very strong case to be made that Taurus is actually depicted with the Pleiades correctly placed over its shoulder in the cave paintings at Lascaux, France, which would have been painted you know, 10,000 B.C. at the earliest and possibly 30, 40,000 B.C. It's very old. So, And then, of course, um, throughout the Middle Ages, in fact, especially in the Dark Ages, when Europe lost a lot of its science, uh, a lot of that stuff was kept alive in the Middle East. And a lot of the names of stars, in fact, are in Arabic uh, because of that. Uh, so that's I will occasionally met, uh, mention some Middle Eastern mythology as well. So it'll be mostly Greek mythology, but... Uh, when I was doing research, it, you quickly sort of dovetail into other things. And a lot of the ideas actually are, translate. Like, pretty much everybody looks at Taurus as a bull. Um, so, anyways, just a little little background information. So, while the Zodiac is very old, it is mainly Greek myth which defines our modern idea of the Zodiac. And in Greek myth, the legends behind 11 of the 12 figures of the Zodiac are memorials to the valiant dead, as I was saying. They're heroes of one sort or another who have attained a second life amongst the stars. Or we might say that they now rule one of the 12 houses of heaven. The other main thing that kind of leaps out at you in these Greek myths about the Zodiac is that there is an awful lot of human-animal transformation going on. So think about this. A dozen heroes associated with human-animal transformation who died and then were resurrected as star people. Uh-oh. And these 12 somehow correlate to the 12 notable children of Garth the Green, who is the preeminent horned god figure in A Song of Ice and Fire mythology. Garth the Green, whose description matches that of the Green Men on the Isle of Faces. 
Yes, I think you can see where this is going. And uh, so, of course, the most important symbolism attached to the number 12 in A Song of Ice and Fire is the last hero's 12 companions who died, but whom I theorize to have been resurrected as green zombies, the first Night's Watch brothers. You guys know the theory? They were skin changers, or green seers like John, and this would have enabled them to be resurrected in a better way than, say, Barrack or Lady Stoneheart, much as we expect John to be a better zombie, and perhaps as we see cold hands uh, already. So since uh, the Zodiac myths are already loaded with human-animal transformation and starry resurrection, they make a natural parallel to the idea of the last hero's dozen resurrected skin-changer companions. And in fact... It may have even been part of George's inspiration to give the last hero a dozen green zombie companions, assuming the green zombie theory is correct, which hopefully it is. I think it is. Feels good. Feels pretty solid. In any case, uh, this, that's actually kind of the point. Uh, the purpose of hiding this Zodiac puzzle in the world of ice and fire as the 12 children of Garth. This is actually more evidence for the green zombie theory. We've already spent a bunch of time in the Green Zombie series tracing out the staggering amount of horned god, stag man, green man symbolism amongst the members of the Night's Watch, and we know that resurrection and the cycle of the seasons is the dominant theme of all such Corn King figures. That's the point of associating the Night's Watch with the Corn King uh, green man mythology. It implies the dozen Green Zombie Night's Watch brothers as stag men and skin changers. Ergo, disguising the Zodiac puzzle as the children of Garth the Green makes a ton of sense and simply re-emphasizes the last hero's dozen as human-animal hybrid people who died heroically and were resurrected as star people. Accordingly, as we go through the twelve houses of the Zodiac and their correlations in A Song of Ice and Fire, we will find symbols of horned lords, the Night's Watch, resurrection, weirwood blood-drinking stuff, long night and war for the dawn stuff, and of course... Lots of moon-related activity. All right, so Boars the Breaker, guys, there are 12 Zodiac patron slots open, and 10 of them are filled. There are two that are open. And we are going to actually talk about both of the open ones today, so I'm hoping that this next section on Boars the Breaker will be so awesome that it will inspire someone to sign up for Patreon and become the earthly avatar of the heavenly house of the bull. So we'll see. We'll see. I'll try my best. But for now, I am going to credit someone, and I'm going to also give you flamenco music. Boars the Breaker. This section is brought to you by our newest Guardian of the Galaxy patron, Rickard Stargaryen, the Steelheart. Father of the Morning and Guardian of the Celestial Moon Maid, and by our Priesthood of Starry Wisdom, Nyessa, the Water Nymph, Goddess of Pain and Mercy, Jancy Lee, Lady of the Waves, Bear Mama of the Sacred Den, Crowfood's Daughter of the Disputed Lands, and the Bloody Tide, Lord of the Greenblood, the Merling Slayer of the Seven Seas. Bores the Breaker who gained the strength of twenty men by drinking only bull's blood and founded House Bulwer of Black Crown. Some tales claim Bors drank so much bull's blood that he grew a pair of shiny black horns. So Bors Bulwer, who drank bull's blood and according to some tales grew a pair of bull's horns, is obviously a match for Taurus. 
Taurus is perhaps the oldest constellation known to man. As I said, it is widely accepted to date back to at least the Bronze Age and may indeed date back to whenever the Lascaux Caves were painted 20 or 30,000 years ago. Again, because of the -the over-the-shoulder placement of uh, the Pleiades over one of the bulls in the cave. The seven stars, it's either six or seven, I forget which. Um, Pleiades is seven, but they may have painted six in the cave because ancient man perceived Pleiades as six, changes over time, yada, yada, yada. In any case, the Pleiades themselves actually are considered part of Taurus, and they are worth talking about because they appear to the naked eye as a cluster of seven stars. And that reminds us of the faith of the seven and their seven-pointed star. So before we even get into House Bulwer and bull-related affairs, I actually found the A Song of Ice and Fire appearance of the Pleiades, which comes fittingly in the Battle of Seven Stars, which was the great conflict of legend between the Andal invaders and the first men kingdoms of the Vale. Check out all the super heavy War for the Dawn language here. This is going to be good. So after describing the emotions of the soldiers on the night before the big battle, we get this line. Clouds blew in from the east, hiding the moon and stars, so the night was dark indeed. The only light came from hundreds of campfires burning in the camps, with a river of darkness between them. In any case, uh, we've got long night symbolism here. We've got clouds blowing in and hiding the moon and stars, and we've got a, a dark night indeed. The river of darkness, black river symbol makes an appearance here. That's one we know well. And it's acting like a barrier or a wall between the two fighters, the two armies. Kind of like the wall divides the others and the night's watch. Think of John seeing the rivers of black ice in the cracks of the weeping wall, perhaps. Then we get this. As the east began to lighten, men rose from their stony beds, donned their armor and prepared for the battle. Then a shout rang through the Andal camp. There, to the west, a sign had been seen, seven stars gleaming in the grey dawn sky. The gods are with us, went up the cry from a thousand throats. Victory is ours. As trumpets blew, the vanguard of the Andals charged up the slope, banners streaming. Yet the first men showed no dismay at the sign that had appeared in the sky. They held their ground, and battle was joined, as savage and bloody a fight as any in the long history of the Vale. So there's the Pleiades, probably. And it's a signal to begin the War for the Dawn, or at least a battle that sounds an awful lot like the War for the Dawn. Here's the cool thing. The Pleiades do indeed sometimes rise just before the sun, although they actually rise in the eastern sky and not the western. But still, it's a cool detail. Anyway, we won't go into the rest of the fight here, which we will eventually get to when we're breaking down all the battle scenes, which I believe are showing us War for the Dawn symbolism. That'll be probably its own series, the Battle Compendium or some such. Uh, But in any case, there are a couple of highlights that I do want to mention from this fight, ones which highlight a specific call out to the Night's Watch, Night's King, Nissa Nissa, and the Weirwood Stigmata. Seven times the Andals charge, the singers say. Six times the first men threw them back. But the seventh attack, led by a fearsome giant of a man named Torgold Tollet, broke through. Torgold the Grim, this man was called, but even his name was a jape, for it is written that he went into battle laughing, naked above the waist, with a bloody seven-pointed star carved across his chest and an axe in each hand. The songs say that Torgold knew no fear and felt no pain. 
Though bleeding from a score of wounds, he cut a red swathe through Lord Redfort's staunchest warriors, then took his lordship's arm off at the shoulder with a single cut. Nor was he dismayed when the sorceress Ursula Upcliffe appeared upon a blood-red horse to curse him. By then he was bare-handed, having left both of his axes buried in a foe's chest, but the singers say he leapt upon the witch's horse, grasped her face between two bloody hands, and tore her head from her shoulders as she screamed for succour. Sorry, but yeah, sorry about the ultra-violence there. Uh, this, this is one of the goriest fight scenes uh, in the world of Ice and Fire, for sure. Um, but in any case, we've got a warrior who knew no fear. That's Night's King talk, of course. And I believe uh, that Night's King is closely connected to Azor High, or may have even been Azor High himself, as you know. This guy is of House Tolet, or Tole, the same as our beloved Dolorous Ed, which associates Torgold Tole with the Night's Watch, just like the Night's King, or presumably the last hero. Ursula Upcliffe is a is a tie to the the Little Mermaid and the Witch Ursula. Uh, so this is so she's basically a goddess of the sea figure, and thus a potential Nissa Nissa figure via the green sea symbolism. That's what I was trying to say. She's a sorceress on a red horse, which certainly lends itself to Fire Moon Maiden symbolism. Uh, just like uh, think of Damon. Targaryen riding Caraxes in that dragon fight over the God's Eye where he was the Fire Moon character. Indeed, the warrior who knew no fear, Torgold, uh, he left bloody weirwood, he has bloody weirwood leaf hands, the bloody hands, and he leaps onto her red horse and rips her moon head off as she screams for sucker like Nissa Nissa, crying out to crack the face of the moon. So that's pretty cool and very violent. Like I said, it's a little bonus constellation for you there in the Pleiades, although they're not actually a constellation, but technically a star cluster. They're also called the Seven Sisters for what it's worth. And since George actually has someone cite them in this War for the Dawn-like battle, I thought it would make a good astronomy warm-up. So there you go. But let's talk about Taurus, shall we? Taurus is a constellation from which we get a very famous biannual meteor shower. It's called the Torrids. Only one shower is observable, and that one falls in November. So that's a pretty good start. Meteor showers. The brightest star in Taurus is Aldebaran, uh, not Alderaan, Aldebaran, uh, which is drawn from Arabic, as I mentioned, and it means the follower, probably because it appears to follow the Pleiades across the night sky. According to how most people have viewed Taurus, this red star is one of the eyes of the bull. You can see how Martin might be able to work with that, right? The red eye of Taurus is said to glare menacingly at Orion, the hunter. Orion is easy to spot in A Song of Ice and Fire as the Sword of the Morning constellation, as we were just discussing, and as I've discussed in Blood of the Other Two, the Stark that brings the dawn. So we've got a bull with a red eye glaring at Orion, the Sword of the Morning. Is, can we find something like that in A Song of Ice and Fire? Yes, we can. <clears throat> My lady? Ned looked embarrassed. I'm Edric Dane, the Lord of Starfall. Behind them, Gendry groaned. Lords and ladies, he proclaimed in a disgusted tone. Arya plucked a withered crabapple off a passing branch and whipped it at him, bouncing it off his thick bull head. Ow, he said. That hurt. He felt the skin above his eye. What kind of lady throws crabapples at people? The bad kind, said Arya, suddenly contrite. She turned back to Ned. I'm sorry I didn't know who you were, my lord. 
this sort of tension between Gendry and Ned is referred to elsewhere. Someone says it straight out. Gendry just doesn't like Ned. So, I mean, this could be a coincidence, but we do have a bull with a presumably swollen eye, a red eye, glaring at Arya and the Sword of the Morning. It would be Edric, the future Sword of the Morning, perhaps. Uh, so even the crab apple might be a Taurus reference because Taurus contains the crab nebula. So we've got a crab and a red eye inside of the bull in that moment. So I think that's all Taurus talk. Now, more important than this sort of Taurus trivia are the bullman figures, like the members of House Bulwer or Gendry here. Gendry has a ton of important symbolism, probably too much to do a thorough accounting on today. And we've actually already touched on a lot of it already. So in brief, Gendry is the son of Robert, the horned god, just as Bors the Breaker is the son of Garth. Gendry wears the bull helm and is called the bull, and he even has the fire reflecting off his helm at the battle in the abandoned holdfast near the god's eye, and that would be the one where Arya sees the burning tree and escapes through the tunnel in the burning barn. Gendry is a smith, as Azor High was, meaning that he works with fire and iron and makes swords, which is like making meteor swords. And again, think of the Torrid meteor shower, which kind of makes Taurus a sort of meteor sword smith, if you will, just like Gendry. Gendry also has eyes like blue ice. In fact, he's the first person in the books to get the ice eyes description after we see the others in the prologue with their ice-cold blue star eyes. This kind of ice and fire juxtaposition is common to the stolen other figure that we tracked in the blood of the other series. And indeed, Gendry never knew his father and mother, uh, never knew his father and his mother died while he was young, rather, and then he was fostered out. Arya also offers him a place at Winterfell, which would be another match to the stolen other baby profile. And most importantly, Gendry was set to join the Night's Watch, which matches both the stolen other baby archetype as well as the general green zombie description. That figures, as all the stolen other baby figures had green zombie Night's Watch symbolism going on when we took a look at them. Now, even better is Gendry swearing allegiance to Beric as one of the Knights of the Hollow Hill, who, of course, parallel the Night's Watch. This doubles down on the symbolism of Gendry joining the Watch and then adds in the Azor Hive figure of Beric as a bonus. So put all that together in light of the green zombie theory and the Zodiac children idea. Just as Bors the Breaker was the son of Garth, Gendry is the son of Robert, the primary avatar of Garth in the main story. Gendry is a fire and ice horned lord who first means to join the Night's Watch and then joins a group that parallels the Watch. He lives in a weirwood cave, as the first Night's Watch may well have hid in the caves of the Children of the Forest. And Gendry serves an Azor Ahai due to the flaming sword and one eye. Gendry absolutely fits the profile of a green zombie, as I've described them and also absolutely fits the profile of one of Garth's Zodiac children, Bors the Breaker. So, too, for the members of House Bulwer in the story. Bors the Breaker himself is an interesting fellow. Growing a pair of bull's horns out of his head makes him a horned lord figure and a therianthrope, just like his father Garth. It also uh, sounds kind of painful, growing bull's horns out of your head, but, you know, whatever, it's a fable. Bors the Breaker is also quite the name, isn't it? I mean... The only other person we know of named The Breaker was Brandon The Breaker, who supposedly teamed up with the first Jorman, a king behind, uh, beyond the wall, I guess he is also behind the wall, to overthrow the Knight's King. So Brandon The Breaker overthrew the Knight's King. Bors The Breaker is a symbol of a green zombie, right? And Bors is also a horned lord who, look, oh, he's drinking blood. 
Battling the Night's King. Okay, well then, I see what's going on here. Someone get John a glass of mulled bull's blood for that final battle, huh? Yeah? No? No. Okay, never mind. Back in the Weirwood Compendium, we discussed a member of House Bulwer who actually did join the Night's Watch. A ranger named Black Jack Bulwer. Hmm. The Bulwer name implies Black Jack is a horned lord figure, and the name Jack makes him a green man, a la Jack and the Green. But instead of a green Jack, he's a black Jack, associating him with the Winter King line of symbolism and implying him as a dead green man, just as a green zombie should be. The symbolism really came to life when Black Jack died. That was in Weirwood Compendium 4, In a Grove of Ash, that we specifically talked about poor old Black Jack Bulwer and how he ended up killed by the Weeper with his severed, eyeless head being brutally mounted on an ashwood spear just north of the wall at Castle Black. The planted ashwood spear creates the symbolism of the ash tree, which is a reference to Yggdrasil and thus to the weirwoods, while the bloody, carved faces of the three rangers who weep blood create the image of a bloody, carved weirwood face weeping blood. It's a symbolic mock-up of a weirwood, in other words, a bloody totem, which depicts Black Jack as a horned lord gone into the weirwood trees upon his death. One of the other unfortunate rangers was, of course, Garth Greyfeather, whose name expresses the same ideas as Black Jack Bulwer. He's a Garth, but he's grey, implying it death and winter. We know that fishing weirs are called Garths, and thus the weirwood tree is really a Garth tree, and here we have a Garth weirwood totem, alongside Black Jack. So this is basically a family portrait of Garth and his son, Bors, is it not? And at the risk of stating the obvious, Bors and Garth and Harry Howe, the third head on the spear here, the, all of them died while venturing north of the wall into the frozen dead lands, just like the last hero did. That brings us to the sigil of House Bulwer, which is a bull's skull, bone over blood. Blood and bone is the famous and oft-used description of the weirwood's coloring, so this is simply another clue about a dead bullman going into the weirwood net. There's no question this is a blood-red color that we're talking about, as it's based on the tale of boars drinking the bull's blood. Obviously, this reminds us of the blood sacrifice to weirwood trees in general, and the fact that Bran can taste the blood of the slain victim that he sees through the eyes of the heart tree in his last weirwood vision in A Dance with Dragons. That's a scene which may well be showing us part of the green zombie process, in fact, sacrificing the would-be green zombie in front of the heart tree. The place that House Bulwer calls home is a little old castle called Black Crown. That's a dark solar king symbol, as we know well, the calling card of the evil, undead version of Azor Ahai, the dark solar king. That's what the entire body of Bulwer symbolism is showing us, essentially, the dark version of the horned god figure, very similar to the dark horned god known as the Black Goat of Kohor, and its avatar on Earth, Vargo Hot, the goat who is from Kohor. It's also a reminder of the darker version of Garth in the older legends, where he demands sacrifice instead of being sacrificed himself. It's, it's uh, less nice that way. While we're speaking of Azor Ahai Reborn, I would be remiss if I did not mention that Black Jack gets a bit of last hero math in A Dance with Dragons. Outside, the world was black and still. Cold, but not dangerously cold. Not yet. It will be warmer when the sun comes up. If the gods are good, the wall may weep. When they reached the lichyard, the column had already formed up. 
John had given Blackjack Bulwer command of the escort, with a dozen mounted rangers under him and two wains. So as with all examples of last hero math, I will remind you that George throws the word dozen around a lot, and so these clues are only ever to be read as complementary to an already established idea. Blackjack's horned lord symbolism, etc., is already well established, so finding him with last hero math is no surprise, and holds with the larger pattern of the people who seem to be associated with last hero math. And, spoiler alert, we're going to find last hero math with pretty much all these zodiac signs. So, and in case you forgot, because it's been a minute since we read the quote, uh, it was a dozen mounted rangers, uh, and then Blackjack Bulwer in command. So, that's not even like an obscure one. That's literally Black Jack commanding 12 Night's Watch brothers. So there you go. I mean, that's, that's last hero math, if anything is. So across the narrow sea in Bravos, we hear more talk of bulls and blood sacrifice, and there's more last hero math, as Arya recalls being given a tour of the various temples in the city by the woman known as the Sailor's Wife. Arya hears of three-headed Trios, our friend, and the pattern maker's maze, which is what we all walk. And then when she's about to fall asleep, she is offered a red bull. Beyond it, by the canal, that's the temple of Aquan the Red Bull. Every 13th day, his priests slit the throat of a pure white calf and offer bowls of blood to beggars. Today was not the 13th day, it seemed. The Red Bull's steps were empty. Okay, not, not that Red Bull. Sorry, not an, it's an actual Red Bull. Point being, the 13th day marks the time when a blood sacrifice shall be made, and this time it's a child of a bull, a white calf, which reminds us of the white lunar bull that Mithras has to slay to be reborn. Compare this 13-associated bull blood drinking ritual to Black Jack being the 13th ranger on the mission, and then later being made into a gory weirwood sacrifice symbol, and of course he's carrying all the blood drinking symbolism of his ancestor boars with him to enhance the parallel. So we've got blood drinking and bulls and last hero math in both situations. Again, this all simply adds to the treasure trove of clues about Azor High and the last hero being death-associated horned lord figures. All right, so here's a cool house bulwer snippet. It's from the Mystery Night. As Dunk listens to Kyle the Cat talk to Blood Raven in disguise as Maynard Plum about the contestants at the tourney at White Walls. Do not slight Sir Buford Bulwer, said Kyle the Cat. The old ox slew forty men upon the red grass field. And every year his count grows higher, said Sir Maynard. Bulwer's day is done. Look at him. Past sixty, soft and fat, and his right eye is as good as blind. Placed alongside Blood Raven in disguise as Maynard Plum, this one eye symbolism for Buford the old ox Bulwer is telling. And of course, what it's telling us is that Odin was here. It's contributing to the Bulwer archetype. And it combines with the blood and bone coloring of their bull sigil to scream, Weirwoods! Greenseers! Blood sacrifice! And it's also funny because Blood-Maynard Plumraven is a one-eyed Greenseer. And he's basically spotting another guy with Horned Lord Greenseer symbolism and identifying him as a fellow one-eyed dude. Takes one to know one, right? It's also a probable reference to the one red eye of the constellation Taurus, of course. And this is where we stop sort of, you know, wondering if any of this is coincidence. You know, we've got, we've got a bull man with one red eye, once again, just like Gendry getting hit in the eye with a crab apple. 
So when Lord Buford, who is called Theomor, by the way, it's apparently he has two names, uh, when he takes the field, the description is worth quoting. Sir Uthor Underleaf, the herald boomed. A shadow crept across Dunk's face as the sun was swallowed by a cloud. Sir Theomor of House Bulwer, the old ox, a knight of Black Crown, come forth and prove your valour. The old ox made a fearsome sight in his blood-red armour, with black bull's horns rising from his helm. He needed the help of a brawny squire to get on his horse, though, and the way his head was always turning as he rode suggested that Sir Maynard had been right about his eye. Still, the man received a lusty cheer as he took to the field. There is your requisite sun-swallowing long-night language, which often occurs right before a battle or fight, meant to serve as an analogue to the War for the Dawn, such as the, the Battle of Seven Stars that we just looked at. And then when he finally loses to Sir Uthor, which was always inevitable, uh, because Sir Uthor had been feigning a struggle, of course, to affect the gambling odds, uh, we get this passage. The old ox fell on the fifth pass, not sideways by a coronal that slipped deftly off his shield to take him in the chest. His foot tangled in his stirrup as he fell, and he was dragged forty yards across the field before his men could get his horse under control. Again, the litter came out to bear him to the maester. A few drops of rain began to fall as Bulwer was carried away, and darkened his surcoat where they fell. Uh, This is notable because a bull character falling off his horse is probably a symbol of the moon being knocked from the sky. And especially coming here after the sun was swallowed by the clouds and the rain, which commences immediately after his fall, darkening the blood-red surcoat, which implies the rain as blood rain. Now we're in business because the rain of moon blood is an easily recognizable moon death symbol. So we've got pretty much the whole sequence here now. This is also a detailed bit of Odin symbolism because Odin, in addition to having one eye like... uh, old man uh, Bulwer here, is also hung upside down from his tree, Yggdrasil. And Yggdrasil is also considered Odin's horse in a more metaphorical sense. So the old ox is mimicking Odin by being hung upside down from his horse. Together with the blind eye, there can be no doubt that Odin's symbolism is being applied here. And in A Song of Ice and Fire terms, that means green seers and death transformation. And we're actually going to come back to this fight scene uh, in a couple of signs later. So we'll be back for more Uther Underleaf. Now, one last tidbit for Boars. And by the way, not every section will be this long. There is quite simply a damn lot of bull symbolism in A Song of Ice and Fire. There's actually some that I've left out for a sake of brevity. But now as to this last point about our buddy, Boars the Breaker. It's said that he drank so much bull's blood that he grew a pair of shiny black horns. As it happens, we see two very similar black horns in the story, and you might know the two I'm speaking of. The first is the supposedly fake horn of Jorman that Mance and the wildlings bring to the wall, the one that Melisandre burns. John sees it first in Mance's tent before the battle. And there were other weapons in the tent, daggers and dirks, a bow and a quiver of arrows, a bronze-headed spear lying beside that big black horn. John sucked in his breath. A war horn. A bloody great war horn. Yes, Munt said, the horn of winter that Jaramon once blew to wake giants from the earth. The horn was huge, eight feet along the curve and so wide at the mouth he could have put his arm inside up to the elbow. If this came from an Aurochs, it was the biggest that ever lived. 
At first he thought the bands around it were bronze, but when he moved closer he saw they were gold. Old gold, more brown than yellow and graven with runes. Now later, when Melisandre burns the horn alongside Rattleshirt disguised as Mance Raider in a partially weirwood cage, we're told that these runes are in fact the runes of the first men. Fake Mance is playing the role of a burning horned lord figure dying and being trapped in the weirwood net here, as we know, and that is the same thing being symbolized by Blackjack Bulwer's severed head on the ashwood spear or the old ox being hung upside down from his horse. Uh, Mel calls the horn the Horn of Darkness before throwing it into the fire, which kind of fits the overall theme of the dark version of the horned god being equivalent to the dark solar king, the horned lord of darkness. By the way, in case you weren't sure, an aurochs is essentially a hairy, extinct species of cattle. So when it talks of Mansa's huge horn coming from the biggest aurochs who ever lived, this is George telling us to think of this as a black bull's horn, just like the ones that boars grew, though obviously a person wouldn't have horns this huge on his head. The other shiny black horn in the story is the one that Euron Crow's eye shows up with to the king's moot, which is nearly a perfect match to Mance's horn. The horn he blew was shiny, black and twisted, and taller than a man as he held it with both hands. It was bound about with bands of red gold and dark steel, incised with ancient Valyrian glyphs that seemed to glow redly as the sound swelled. Mance's horn here is eight feet long, and this one is taller than a man, which sounds like they're about the same size. Mance's horn had bands of old gold with first men runes, while Dragonbinder here has bands of red gold and Valyrian steel incised with ancient Valyrian glyphs, which glow redly at first. Then a moment later, it says they were burning brightly, every line and letter shimmering with white fire. Mance's horn's runes uh, didn't glow themselves, but the entire horn was burned, and so we have the burning horn idea present with both black horns. Dragonbinder is called the Horn of Hell by Aaron Dampere, which compares very well to the Horn of Darkness label that Mel gives the fake horn of Jorman. So look, I don't have a good theory about how these horns were both from Azor High's Black Dragon, which were made into matching magical horns, with one being sent to Valyria and the first Valyrians to help them tame dragons while the other was sent north of the Wall and given to the first men so they could put runes on it and call it the Horn of Winter because that would just be crackpot and then it was burned by Melisandre for no reason at all. That doesn't make any sense. So I don't have a theory like that. Uh, but what I think is actually going on here is that our dark horned lord figure should simply be associated with magical horns. Ones which may have been used to help bring on the great darkness of the long night. I'm sort of previewing a future Signs and Portals episode about the magic horns, which you guys know is coming. And that's kind of its own theory, but if you're a regular listener or reader of Mythical Astronomy, then you know that I've been hinting at the idea of a magical horn being part of the recipe for breaking the moon for a long time now. I do have a very specific theory about that. But for now, we can observe that there is some mystery to these magical horns, the horn of Jorman and Dragonbinder, and the clues linking these two huge shiny black horns back to boars seem to hint that the Dark Horned Lord figure and the Green Zombies and the entire Wharf of the Dawn thing has something to do with magical horns. Horns as in ones that make sounds. Gods, this triple entendre horns thing can be confusing. So he has horns on his head and he blows horns and he's horny. Uh, is, there, is there anything else? 
so the bottom line here is that with all the other Bulwer and Gendry symbolism, every last bit of this stuff connects to the Night's Watch and the War for the Dawn, which was won by green zombies, according to our theory. Harlan the Hunter and Herndon of the Horn. This section is brought to you by our newest Zodiac patron, Outer Panda, the Pandouter. The Man in the Mirror, Man, and Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House, Gemini, as well as our priests and priestesses of starry wisdom, Yang Tar, the Midnight Light, Shadowskin Master of the Lands of Always Bjork, Stone Dancer, the Mind's Eye, Whirl Master of the Trident, and Codfish the Steelbender, whose words are, under the sea, all the metalworkers are codfish. Next up, for our correlation to Gemini, we have the twins Harlan the Hunter and Herndon of the Horn. As somebody who grew up near Herndon, Virginia, I get a little extra kick out of that. Now, it's not clear if House Tarly officially claims descent from these famous brothers, but it is likely that they do so, as they are considered to be one of the oldest houses in the Reach, and they live on Horn Hill, which is the legendary home of Herndon of the Horn and Harlan the Hunter. Harlan the Hunter and Herndon of the Horn, twin brothers who built their castle atop Horn Hill and took to wife the beautiful woods witch who dwelled there, sharing her favours for a hundred years, for the brothers did not age so long as they embraced her whenever the moon was full. Oh God, not more horned god stuff. Yes, Herndon of the Horn. You can see where this is going. Because, of course, you are a good myth-head, and you've already read or listened to the earlier Green Zombies episodes, and you remember that this pair of twins, Harlan the Hunter and Herndon of the Horn, is basically just a word scramble of a famous horned lord figure from English folklore known as Hearn the Hunter. Hearn is an undead guardian of the woods figure, less of a god and more of a fallen man who has become something more, which, of course, fits our idea about the Green Zombies perfectly. Hearn was disgraced in life, and hung himself from an oak, which is called Hearn's Oak, and this is an actual tree in the English countryside, which you can go and visit. But uh, Hearn's shade became a guardian of the woods afterward, after he died, and so now he is a stag-antlered, cloaked man, riding a horse, blowing a horn, and leading a procession of other dead or enthralled creatures, which is, of course, known as the Wild Hunt. And that's also tied to Odin, another transformed horn lord who died on a tree, and so on and so forth. Now, Hearn has a lot in common with cold hands, and indeed, the two places that Hearn's influence seem to be felt the strongest in the story is with cold hands and House Tarly, who made their home on Horn Hill and took the huntsman as their sigil. That's highly sensible, since Sam later meets up with cold hands, and they share a lot of symbolism together. As we know from our earlier exploration of these ideas, all of this symbolism gives strong testimony to the basic green zombie theory. Sam and Cold Hands show us what kind of fellows belong in the Night's Watch, and I believe the more detailed message is about the original Night's Watch and their fundamental relationship to green seers and weirwoods, and of course, death transformation. For example, Cold Hands apparently teaches Sam to recite a shorter and presumably much older version of the Night's Watch Oath to the Blackgate Weirwood face beneath the Night Fort, while Cold Hands shows us what the very first Watchmen were like, according to the Green Zombie Theory. Undead, speaking the old tongue, riding elks and other beasts, and receiving aid from the Green Seers and their ravens. In a general sense, all of the original Green Zombie Night's Watchmen would be a match for Hearn, 
They are undead. They are guardians of the wood in the sense that they guard the realm of the living from the vengeful ice demons who reportedly seek to ride down on the cold winds of winter and exterminate all warm-blooded life. And, of course, they are strongly tied to sacred trees and antlers and horns that you blow. You guys get the idea. Now, in a sense, all of the original green zombie Night's Watchmen would basically be a match for Hearn in that they are undead and they play that guardian of the woods role in the sense that they guard the realm of the living from the vengeful ice demons who reportedly seek to ride down on the cold winds of winter and exterminate all warm-blooded life. Again, I'll point out that before the Andals brought the faith of the Seven to Westeros, all Night's Watchmen would have been old gods worshipping first men with the possible exception of maybe a handful of Night's Watchmen who, I don't know, worship the Drowned God or the Lady of the Waves and the Lord of the Skies. Don't know if we had any Sisterton men in the Watch, but uh, we do these days, so we might have back then. Can't discriminate. But that aside, the vast majority of the Night's Watchmen, and certainly the original Night's Watchmen, would have been First Men who worshipped the Old Gods. And this helps bring the Hearn the Hunter, Guardian of the Woods role into focus. The original Night's Watch swore their oath to protect the realm of the living to the immortal sentient trees. And the fact that Hearn's Oak is the tree that he died on via hanging, a la Odin, implies that the Night's Watch may have also died in front of their sacred tree, the Weirwood. And of course, that's one of the things which seems to be suggested by our green zombie research, that the original Watch was ritually sacrificed before heart trees, only to be resurrected and swear their Night's Watch vows. Now, we just talked about Mance's fake horn of Jorman and Euron's dragonbinder. And, of course, Sam has that old cracked war horn that John found with the dragonglass at the Fist of the First Men, which some people believe to be the original horn of Jorman. John may have even given it a toot. He had made a dagger for Gren as well, and another for the Lord Commander. The war horn he had given to Sam... On closer examination, the horn had proved cracked, and even after he'd cleaned all the dirt out, John had been unable to get any sound from it. The rim was chipped as well, but Sam liked old things, even worthless old things. Make a drinking horn out of it, John told him, and every time you drink, you'll remember how you range beyond the wall, all the way to the fist of the first man. He gave Sam a spearhead and a dozen arrowheads as well, and passed the rest out among his other friends for luck. I can't help but notice Sam being given a Last Hero Dragonglass take-home kit, one spearhead and twelve arrows. As with Boar's Bulwer, seeing the Last Hero math around Horned Lord figures who are Night's Watchmen essentially just reinforces the basic premise of the Green Zombies theory. And it makes sense to equate the Night's Watch with Dragonglass in a general sense, because the brothers themselves are like black swords in the darkness who use fire to kill the others. It's also worth remembering that House Tarly does possess a Valyrian steel greatsword, Heartsbane, which, like Dragonglass, may come in handy for killing others before too much longer. And just like Blackjack, seeing a potential magic horn in the midst of these symbols again makes us think that the story of Azor High in The Last Hero may have something to do with magical horns, potentially this long-lost Horn of Jorman or Horn of Winter. Sam continues to carry this old war horn around as he sails to Bravos and then to Old Town, despite the fact that he loses damn near everything else, which is one of the things that makes people think it may prove to be important, despite its unassuming status. 
Anyone who has seen Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade surely remembers the Grail Chamber, filled with elaborate chalices and goblets. But of course, the true Holy Grail turns out to be the simple wooden cup, because Jesus was a carpenter, of course. Point being, perhaps these gigantic, flashy magic horns that we are shown, the fake Horn of Jorman, and in particular, Dragonbinder, are decoys, and maybe it's really the old broken one that Sam has that's important. Now I have to say, I am... I do find myself seduced by the power of Dragonbinder, and I think that's the one to watch, even if Sam's was the original Horn of Winter. We'll have to wait and see, and it's fun to speculate, but the main point for our purposes today is that our first two Zodiac children of Garth are strongly connected to horns of basically every type. As for the legend of Harlan and Herndon, a pair of twins who prolonged their life by some sort of sex magic ritual with a woods witch when the moon was full, sign me up, this story has clear parallels to the Greek and Roman mythology behind Gemini, which is that of Castor and Pollux, also known as the Dioscuri. They were twin brothers who had the same mother, Leda, but different fathers. Castor was the son of the king of Sparta, Tyndarius, while Pollux was the divine son of Zeus, who had transformed into a swan to impregnate Leda because, you know, Zeus is like that. Castor and Pollux are sometimes said to be born from eggs, and they are often said to be born with their sisters as well, Helen of Troy and Clytemnestra. Castor and Pollux, or Polydeuces, as he's called in Greek, were indeed hunters, as Herndon and Harlan were, and they are almost always depicted on horseback. They have circular caps to symbolize the egg they were born from, and are frequently depicted with stars above them to symbolize Gemini. They are very strongly associated with horses in particular, and even marry two sisters who are known as the Daughters of the White Horse. Between the swan transformation involved in their creation and the marrying of the daughters of a horse, you can see that the Therianthrope slash human-animal hybrid mythology is once again present with this sign. Another parallel to Harlan and Herndon is found in the story of Pollux's death. The circumstances of his death aren't necessarily relevant to our story today, so you can look that up if you want to. But the point is that as Pollux lay dying in Castor's arms, Zeus offered Castor a choice. He could remain immortal and spend all of his time on Mount Olympus, or he could give half of his immortality to his brother. He chose the latter, good man, and so the twins alternated between Hades and Olympus. They became the two brightest stars in the constellation Gemini, thereby gaining a sort of eternal life after death, as with most of our other zodiacal figures. As you can see, this is somewhat similar to the notion of Harlan and Herndon extending their lives by laying with the Woods Witch. It's not an exact match. Castor and Pollux marry sisters instead of the same woman, and their semi-immortality is not granted by their wives, but by Zeus. Still, given that both sets of twins are hunters, who sort of share their fountain of long life with one another, and given these starry resurrection similarities to the green zombies, it's enough to see that Martin has essentially spun his own version of the Dioscuri in Herndon and Harlan. One last bit of Castor and Pollux lore. They are also associated with something called St. Elmo's Fire. What is St. Elmo's Fire? It doesn't have anything to do with tickling, I promise. Well, and this is borrowing from the Wikipedia definition, it's a weather phenomenon in which luminous plasma is created by a coronal discharge from a sharp or pointed object in a strong electric field in the atmosphere, such as those generated by thunderstorms or created by a volcanic eruption. 
Now because it appeared most often on the end of a ship's mast, it is named after St. Erasmus of Formia, also called St. Elmo, who is the patron saint of sailors. So here's where Castor and Pollux come in. In ancient Greece, the appearance of a single Elmo's flame was called a Helen, as in Helen of Troy, and the name the Greeks took for themselves, the Hellens. And this word literally means torch, as we saw in Weirwood Compendium 3, Garth of the Gallows, when we talked about Durin and Elenai, with Elenai being a variant of Helen. Helen is the sister of Castor and Pollux, and indeed, if there were two flames of St. Elmo's fire, they were called Castor and Polydeuces. The main reason that I mention any of this is mainly because the flame of St. Elmo's fire is usually blue. And if Martin is looking for inspiration for sources of blue flame, he of course has to look a little bit harder than the standard red and orange of normal fire, so... I've found him drawing from things like lightning and electricity, as well as this St. Elmo's fire. So just took that away for now, and we will reference it again sometime in the future. And if you're listening to this podcast and you didn't see the live stream, here's where I will encourage you uh, to go check out San Rixian's amazing ghost ship that she drew, lit up with St. Elmo's blue fire. It's really something else. I've got it both in the uh, text version of this essay on LucifermeansLightbringer.com, as well as embedded in the actual live stream video on my YouTube channel, also named Lucifer Means Lightbringer, as you know. Gilbert of the Vines. This section is brought to you by Dire Liz, the Alpha Patron, a descendant of Gilbert of the Vines and Garth the Green, earthly avatar of Heavenly House Aquarius, as well as our priesthood of starry wisdom. Lady Silverwing, last child of the forest, keeper of all leeward shores, Ash Rose, queen of sevens, mistress of mythology, and Stephanie Stormstrummer, the gift bringer, raven minstrel of the mountains. The Gilbert of the Vines, who taught the men of the arbor to make sweet wine from the grapes that grew so fat and lush across their island, and who founded House Red Wine. So, Gilbert of the Vines. Aquarius, the water bearer, is the best match for Gilbert of the Vines. Even though Aquarius is called the water bearer, the most popular Aquarius myth involves a cupbearer who serves wine as well as water. That would be Ganymede, a very handsome young prince of Troy, who is thought to be the most beautiful man in the world. One day, while Ganymede was tending his father's sheep, Zeus abducted him, either by transforming into an eagle himself or by sending an eagle, so that Ganymede would be his cupbearer, cupbearer, asterisk, cough, cough, air quotes, and according to most versions of the tale, it's implied, of course, that he's taken as Zeus's lover as well. Because Zeus don't discriminate. He's down for pretty much everything. Man, beast, woman, doesn't matter. Zeus is down. He's very Garth-like, I'll say that. And which is why it makes sense to, if you notice, Robert is basically a mix of Green Man mythology and, and uh, Thor. And of course, Thor is, uh, uh, is the storm god. And so we've got Zeus, who's another horny storm god. That's the connection I was trying to make. So when Martin is creating these archetypes, he essentially grabs anything that's similar and figures out how to pour, uh, you know, sort of pull it together. So... There you go. You get Robert, a horny storm god, and that's what Zeus is. So Ganymede is often depicted with a golden cup, out of which he serves Zeus water, wine, and ambrosia, which is kind of the drink of the gods, if you will. 
But one day Ganymede has had enough of serving Zeus and instead pours out his cup, pours out one for all the homies, causing days of rains heavy enough to flood the entire world. Ganymede is eventually put into the sky by Zeus as the constellation Aquarius. So the symbolism of Ganymede being taken to Olympus and being placed in the heavens as a constellation is very similar to the Castor and Pollux idea of living at Olympus, well, half the time anyway, but also being placed in the stars. Going to live with the gods is like ascending to heaven and like moving on to the afterlife. So it's essentially a, that's the good kind of death transformations, put it that way. The animal transformation element is here again, although it's not Ganymede transforming, but Zeus, who, you know, does that kind of thing all the time. He changed into a swan to seduce Leto, for example, and we are just talking about that. Uh, Ganymede is usually depicted with his eagle, so it's kind of, kind of a big part of his myth. So here's where it gets interesting. Ganymede, in, atten- uh, in addition to being Aquarius, is also the largest moon of Jupiter. That's right. Ganymede is a moon figure who is taken captive. Mm. George makes a reference to this in the form of the name Gilbert, Gilbert of the Vines, who's we're correlating with Aquarius, of course, because Gilbert is a Germanic name made up of the root words gisil, G-I-S-I-L, which means pledge or hostage, and berat, which is B-E-R-A-H-T, and that means bright. So Gilbert means bright hostage or bright pledge, bright captive. A captive moon, in other words, just like Ganymede, a captive moon prince, you might say. Ganymede is the bright captive moon person who pours out the wine and ambrosia of the gods, and that's starting to sound a lot like a moon being stolen from the sky and unleashing waves of moon blood and the fiery wrath of the gods. And when we look back to House Red Wine, we realize that wine and blood are virtually interchangeable as symbols. And so we're right back to blood drinking and full moons and other occult shit. In the main story, we have a pair of red wine twins who are basically hostages of the crown after Cersei and Joffrey seize the throne. Hostages, just like Ganymede. They do make an attempt at escape, which goes as follows. And this is Varys reporting to Tyrion. Varys made a mark on the parchment. Sir Horace and Sir Harbour Redwine have bribed a guard to let them out Poston Gate the night after next. Arrangements have been made for them to sail on the Petoshi Galley, Moonrunner, disguised as oarsmen. Can we keep them on those oars for a few years, see how they fancy it? He smiled. No, my sister would be distraught to lose such treasured guests. Inform Sir Jocelyn, seize the man they bribed and explain... What an honour it is to serve as a brother of the Night's Watch. And to have men posted around the Moonrunner, in case the Red Wines find a second guard short of coin. It's pretty funny, right? I mean, this is what makes it so rewarding to follow George's rabbit trails. He leaves these wonderful clues which don't reveal themselves until you know just what to look for. These captive princes who descend from Gilbert the Bright Captive should be left on the moonboat for a few years to see how they like it. Meanwhile, the treacherous man from the moonboat shall be sent to the Night's Watch. It's good stuff. And the treasonous Varys, or the treasons Varys names, right before and after this red wine plot, reinforce the message. So first, Varys tells of the captain of the king's galley, White Hart, who plans to go over to Stannis, 
To which Tyrion responds, I suppose we must make some sort of bloody lesson out of the man. So there's the bloody sacrifice of a Solar King stag man, the White Heart pledged to Stannis. And then what does Varys mention right after the Red Wine's Moonrunner plot? Why, it's the Red Comet. We also have a sudden plague of holy men. The comet has brought forth all manner of queer priests, preachers, and prophets, it would seem. They beg in the wine sinks and pot shops and foretell doom and destruction to anyone who stops to listen. So what the interesting part here is that the comet has brought in a wave of prophets who hang out in wine sinks. Again, think of Aquarius and wine and Gilbert of the Vines. And they're preaching doom uh, with the captive red wine twins attempting to escape on Moonrunner right in the middle of it as basically a scrambled tribute to Ganymede mythology. So we also saw moon associations with our first two Zodiac constellation figures, of course. Boar's the Breaker's moon symbolism came via the nods to Mithras slaying the lunar bull, and Harlan and Herndon embraced their woods witch when the moon was full to gain eternal life, while their probable descendant Samuel Tarley has a moon face on four separate occasions. And what's going on here is that the Night's Watch brothers are basically symbols of the black moon meteors. And they're synonymous with other black moon meteor symbols like dragon glass knives, valerian steel swords, and burning brands. We should expect to find moon and moon meteor symbolism with essentially all of our zodiac children and their extended symbolism. And spoiler alert, you know this will be happening. And like I said, basically, this is because the Night's Watch brothers represent moon meteors. And so all of these Garth people of the zodiac, as well as being tied to their zodiac signs, they will also have lots of moon symbolism. Now, speaking of Night's Watch brothers, there was a famous ranger of the Night's Watch who, and I imagine he was probably the, uh, what do they call the lead ranger? The first ranger or first ranger? Yeah. So kind of last hero vibe just to that title. But in any case, there's a guy who he's not a member of House Red Wine, but his name was Red Wynn. So he's just missing the E. And this tale seems to fit the themes that we've explored so far for House Redwine, Gilbert of the Vines, and Aquarius. So see if you can spot the cryptic last hero math here. And this is John speaking to open the passage. Did you find the maps? Oh, yes. Sam's hand swept over the table, fingers plump as sausages, indicating the clutter of the books and scrolls before him. A dozen at the least. He unfolded a square of parchment. The paint has faded, but you can see where the mapmaker marked the sites of wildling villages, and there's another book. Where is it now? I was reading it a moment ago. He shoved some scrolls aside to reveal a dusty volume bound in rotted leather. This, he said reverently, is the account of a journey from the Shadow Tower all the way to Lawn Point on the frozen shore, written by a ranger named Redwin. It's not dated, but he mentions Adoran Stark as king in the north, so it must be from before the conquest. John, they fought giants. Redwin even traded with the children of the forest. It's all here. Ever so delicately, he turned the pages with a finger. He drew maps as well, see? Maybe you could write an account of our ranging, Sam. The last hero math here was with the maps. There were a dozen scrolls, and then this other book written by Redwin 
which make Red Wind's book the 13th, and thus Red Wind the symbolic last hero, which makes sense. He's the first ranger, and he's journeying far into the cold, dead lands of the north, just like the last hero. He's trading with the children of the forest, very like the last hero receiving whatever the mysterious aid from the children was in his tale. And then John finishes by drawing an analogy between Redwin and Sam by suggesting that Sam write an account of their raging like Redwin did. And that makes sense because Sam, of course, might have more last hero symbolism and last hero math than anybody. So there you go. Short section, but very cool, I thought, of following the red wines. And when I found, I think when I found the Ganymede uh, red wine twins being held hostage thing, that was maybe the, the moment that I realized this was definitely a thing. It was early on in the process of researching the zodiac signs. And when I found that, I was like, oh, yes, this is a full-on treasure hunt here. So I hope you guys are having fun. I mean, this is not – usually my theories are very much chained to proving a hypothesis and stuff, whereas this is just going all over the place. I mean, we're talking about the green zombie hypothesis, but really – we're just following, like, we're jumping around scene to scene, different characters, just looking for this sort of, these signs of the Zodiac. But um, the Ganymede stuff was pretty fun. We've got another, a monster section coming up next here. So let me cue up the music. Uh, this is going to be Maris the Maid, the Most Fair. And right before I even start, I will again shout out Crow Food's daughter from the Disputed Lands YouTube channel, uh, who has done... Amazing work on all the Ironborn myth, which led her to mermaids. And Maris the Most Fair has a lot of mermaid symbolism. So she's talked about the Argoth, Stoneskin, uh, Uther Hightower, Maris the Maid, stuff that we're right about to dig into. And she's got a different but not in any way contradictory take on the myth that is very much worth checking out. Uh, as usual, Martin likes to combine as many different things uh, at once happening. So... After this section, uh, if you haven't seen Amanda's video, um, you know, after this video today, go check that out. And you can see how much Martin has packed into this, like, two-line story of Maris the Most Fair, Maid, and Uther Hightower. It's just bonkers what Martin can do <laughs> within a tiny space, dude. By the way, the patron we're about to thank is another two-year-plus patron. So we're really doing some serious honor and homage today. Thanks, guys. Maris the Maid, the most fair. This section is brought to you by the faithful Patreon support of Sir Dionysus of House Galadon, wielder of the milk glass blade, the just maid, earthly avatar of Heavenly House Virgo and Libra, as well as our members of the Starry Wisdom Priesthood, such as Mathar of Moontown, Fisher of the Shining Sea, John called Saint Baptiste, Apprentice of Satyrs, Cupbearer of Leopards, and the Thief of Sometimes, and Sir Aeneas Frey of the Loudwater. Someone named Maris the Maid, the Most Fair, can only be Virgo. It would seem so at first glance, and further digging confirms it without a doubt. So here is the passage again on Maris. Maris the Maid, the Most Fair, whose beauty was so renowned that fifty lords fired for her hand at the first tourney ever to be held in Westeros. The victor was the grey giant, Argoth Stoneskin, but Maris wed King Uthor of the Hightower before he could claim her, and Argoth spent the rest of his days raging outside the walls of Old Town, roaring for his bride. From the bear and the maiden fair to Maris the maid, the most fair, 
There are many a fair maiden running around the lands of Westeros, but in what sense are we using the word fair? Are we talking about pretty maidens or just maidens, fair-minded maidens? Are they good-looking or are they even-handed or maybe both? The answer lies in some very clever wordplay at work in this story of an ancient hero, Sir Galadon of Morn, and this story is told to us by Brienne of Tarth. Brienne of Garth, I mean Tarth, in A Feast for Crows. Sir Galadon was a champion of such valour that the maiden herself lost her heart to him. She gave him an enchanted sword as a token of her love. The Just Maid, it was called. No common sword could check her, nor any shield withstand her kiss. Sir Galadon bore the Just Maid proudly, but only thrice did he unsheath her. He would not use the maid against a mortal man, for she was so potent as to make any fight unfair. Now, surely, there is no fairer maiden than the maiden herself. Even Maris the most fair would have to admit that. I mean, you can't compete with a goddess. But the sword that the maiden herself gives out is called the Just Maid, and Galadon won't use it against mortal men because it would be unfair, emphasizing the theme of justice, as opposed to Maris the most fair maid who is renowned for her beauty. But this is more than a clever word pun on the word fair. The constellation Virgo, the celestial virgin, has long been perceived as holding aloft the scales of Libra because of their positioning in the sky. Thus, Virgo, or Astrea, as she was known to the ancients, whose name means star maiden, is the original just or fair maid. The goddess form of Astrea is likewise associated with justice, just as you might imagine, this is also where we get the concept of blind lady justice holding up the scales, a familiar sight inside all United States courtrooms. That's right, lady justice is essentially mythical astronomy. It's Virgo holding Libra. Libra is the only zodiacal constellation which is a thing instead of an animal or a person, and thus wouldn't really work well with the whole zodiac children of Garth puzzle anyway. Therefore, it makes a great deal of sense for George to combine Libra and Virgo to create the concept of the maiden fair. That's certainly what the ancients did, at least when perceiving Virgo as Astrea, the star maiden associated with justice. She was said to be the last of the immortals to linger on Earth during the Golden Age, only choosing to finally leave the Earth when the Iron Age fell, due to the wickedness of man. She ascended to the stars and became Virgo, matching the pattern of the other Zodiac figures that we've discussed so far. She's actually prophesied to return, as it happens, and to bring with her a return of the Golden Age. And yes, combining Virgo and Libra means that we now have 11 constellations instead of 12. Yes, that's true. You guys are very good at math. You've been studying the last year of math chalkboard. You can count to 13 at least. I'll explain that in the next section. That's a short answer. As for Sir Galadon and his sword, named the Just Maid, let's consider. This is really just another version of the Azor High fable, isn't it? Galadon is our magic sword hero, obviously. The maiden herself, one of the seven and therefore a goddess, plays the role of the Moon Maiden, which means that she represents both Nissa Nissa, giving birth to Lightbringer the sword, and the Moon giving birth to Lightbringer meteors. When she loses her heart to Galadon and gives him a sword, that's simply the moon exploding into meteors, which are like the hearts of fallen stars or fallen moons, which is exactly the type of thing you can make a magic sword out of. 
A sword too amazing to even use against mortal men. Lightbringer, you might even call it. Sir Galadon, the perfect knight, is from Morn, a place on the Isle of Tarth, which is now only ruins. A champion knight carrying the name Morn and a magic sword? Well, that has to remind us of the Sword of the Morning and Dawn, right? Indeed, Venus-based morning star and even star symbolism is found around Galadon. On the opposite part of the island of Tarth from the ruins of Morn is a place called Evenfall Hall, the seat of House Tarth, whose lord is known as the Even Star. So we've got Starfall versus the Even Star at Evenfall Hall. A knight of Morn with a magic sword versus the sword of the morning with a magic sword. It's pretty clear enough, pretty clear to me anyways. And now, coincidence is starting to seem impossible, as I like to say. The Galadon Just Made myth is simply a mashup of the Dawn and Lightbringer legends. That's what I would call it. One of the things said about Sir Galadon, as Brienne tells us in A Feast for Crows, is that he once supposedly used the Just Made to slay a dragon. That is very interesting, since Valerian Steel can kill others, and I've offered the wild speculation that Dawn, which is like white Valyrian steel, might be able to kill dragons. Think of the ice spear that the Night King on the HBO show uses. Dawn might work something like that, perhaps. I've, I've put that idea out there anyways. Now, in terms of the narrative, the tale of Sir Galadon, the perfect knight, who was reluctant to use his magic sword, is used as a device to help Brienne of Garth, I mean Tarth, realize she was, that she needs to be willing to do whatever it takes to win and not let the sort of stiff honor of Galadon or, let's say, Ned Stark get in the way. Brienne is using her cheap sword at first and then thinks of the Galadon tale, thinks to herself, oh, I better go get Oathkeeper, which is technically a magic sword, as all Valyrian steel swords are. And it's a good thing she did, as she is soon using Oathkeeper to slay the bloody mummers including one that drops out of a weirwood tree holding a triple morning star, but that's another story. Needless to say, the point here is that Oathkeeper is a prime Lightbringer comet sword symbol, and so the parallel between Oathkeeper and the Just Maid helps tighten up the conclusion that Galadon's story is another version of our sword hero and his magic meteor sword, which was made of a piece of goddess, the moon goddess. Now, we were just comparing the Just Maid to Dawn, now we have Brienne comparing Just Made to a black Valyrian steel sword, which is kind of the opposite of Dawn. But it's possible that that level of delineation simply isn't important for the parallels that Barton is creating. And it's also possible that Dawn was the original ice of House Stark. And thus Oathkeeper, made from the steel of Ned's ice, is intended to make us think of ice and therefore Dawn when Brienne compares it to the Just Made. As all of you know, we are eternally trying to sort out which color sword was wielded by the last hero or knight's king and whoever else. And I would simply say, as I have from the beginning, that there were two Lightbringer swords, quote-unquote, involved in the War for the Dawn. A big white one called Ice, which is now known as Dawn, and a black sword made from the Bloodstone Emperor's Black Meteor, which would have essentially been a prototype for Valerian steel swords that came after. Thus, it works just fine for me to see parallels being drawn from the just made to both Dawn and a black Valyrian steel sword with a ton of Lightbringer symbolism like Oathkeeper. So as it happens, Brienne the Beauty, the most fair maid of Tarth, parallels both Galadon and the maiden herself who gave the sword to Galadon. 
Now, so far, we've seen that Brienne compares uh, the magic sword that she was given, Oathkeeper, to the one that Galadon was given, the Just Maid. And she also compares her honor to Galadon's honor. And both of those things place Brienne in the Galadon role, making Brienne a fair maid in the sense of being just as Galadon was, carrying the Just Maid. But Brienne also does indeed compare very well to the maiden herself, because Brienne is technically a maiden, and though she isn't regarded as beautiful save for her eyes, and her character, of course, as we all know, her ironic name is Brienne the Beauty. That name is in turn a reference to Venus mythology. She's the daughter of the even star, after all, and makes Brienne an avatar of Venus, the goddess of love and beauty, if you will. Ergo, in addition to being just and comparing her sword to the just maid, Brienne is also a fair maid in the sense of Maris the maid, the most fair, who was renowned for her beauty. So Brienne hits both sides of the fair maiden joke, if you will. Isn't that lovely? Lovely. It's a beauty joke. On top of that, she wanders around looking for Sansa, saying, I'm looking for my sister, a fair maid of three and ten, simply because Martin cannot resist layering his jokes as thickly as possible. Prediction time. Here's a prediction. So... When Jamie gives Brienne the magic sword, Brienne is playing uh, the Galadon role. And although I doubt Brienne will lose her heart to anyone but Jamie, who she's definitely in love with, I wouldn't be surprised if circumstances have Brienne play the role of the maiden herself and uh, have her give out her magic sword to a worthy champion of great valor, who would be Jon Snow, of course, since he's been thinking about his father's sword ice for five books now, despite having long claw. So I don't know, maybe they can trade. All I know is that I've always thought it would make the most sense for John to get his hands on Oathkeeper, since it is the sword of his true father, Ned Stark, and bears the colors and symbolism of his genetic father, Rhaegar. In any case, bringing the focus back to Maris the Maid, we see that her story has parallels to the story of Galadon and the Maiden of the Seven. If you remember, she married Uthor of the High Tower. So now we're going to talk about Uthor. So I believe the High Towers are most likely descended of the Dragon Lords from Ashai, who would have been part of the Great Empire of the Dawn, according to my theory. And Uthor, as it happens, has an especially dragony or dragonish name. It's only one letter off from that of Uther Pendragon the father of King Arthur of Excalibur fame, with Pendragon translating to Head of the Dragon. He's playing the Galadon Azor High role, in other words, and he wins the hand of Maris the Most Fair Maid, just as the maiden herself lost her heart to Galadon. Now, as many of you know, the word Maris means sea, and is often heard in the phrase Stella Maris, which means Star of the Sea, and is a name for both the Pole Star because, uh, you know, sailors use that to navigate. Uh, But Stella Maris is also the name of, drumroll, the Virgin Mary. Yes, that's right, the Virgin Mary. Virgo Maris, Virgin Mary. Maris's name does indeed allude to stars and the sea, as well as virginity. So Maris, the most fair maid, makes a great Nissa Nissa figure, and she makes a great Virgo. George has given us another Stella Maris woman as well, and that would be Shiera Sea Star, the lover of Bloodraven. Stella Maris means sea star, basically, 
And even the name Shera is kind of starry because the Dothraki name for the comet is Sherakia, the bleeding star. Even better, just as Uthor and Argoth fought over Maris's hand, Bloodraven and his half-brother, Bittersteel, hated each other and warred against each other, and they were both in love with Shera Seastar. All of this related wordplay and symbolism simply enhances Maris the Most Fair as our Nissa Nissa to Uther Hightower's Azor High. So, considering that Maris was a daughter of Garth, and that there are abundant clues that Nissa Nissa was at least part child of the forest, an elf woman with connection to the Weirwoods, this tale of Uther of the Hightower building the first Hightower and marrying Maris the Maid, daughter of Garth, seems like something of an echo of Azor Hai coming to Westeros to marry a child of the forest woman or a human woman with child of the forest blood. Yes, the weirwood goddess theory. A woman who is a child of the forest or part child of the forest could definitely have been remembered as a daughter of Garth the Green, who is a forest king, basically, in his own right. And at the very least, we can see a tale which speaks of dragon-blooded people coming to Westeros by sea and then marrying into the bloodline of the first men, as Uthor does by taking Maris, the daughter of Garth, to wife. And here's where we get back to the Hedge Knight. I found an echo of Uthor Hightower, which suggests him as a green seer, as Azor High was, or at least as I believe him to be. You remember Uthor Underleaf from the jousting scene earlier, the one with the old ox Buford Bulwer from the Hedge Knight. That joust took place at Attorney at Whitewalls, and Uthor Underleaf is really a great character. He's basically Woody Harrelson from White Men Can't Jump. He's the ultimate ringer, who makes bets on himself and then punks his opponents. It's a pretty good con. Woody Harrelson's character, intentionally dressed like a sort of rumpled shut-in, who didn't look like he had any sort of basketball game, but that was, of course, part of the con he was running, and Uthor, a short fellow, uses the humble and unassuming sigil of a snail to encourage people to underestimate him. It's a great con, and Uthor, who Dunk thinks looks more like a merchant than a knight, is hiding abundant wealth inside his shabby-looking tent as a snail hides inside of its shell. Dunk actually makes that comparison. So more importantly, Uthor Underleaf is a name that implies a green seer living under a tree. And Uthor kindly wears green enamel armor, carries a green shield, and has a silver snail on green sigil to help us think of him as a green knight. He is a green knight. And just as Uthor Hightower's rival was the great giant Argoth Stoneskin, the winner of the tourney, Uthor Underleaf gets to fight against Dunk, Dunk the Lunk, a giant in gray armor with a gray Gallows Knight sigil in this particular joust. Dunk is not the champion of the tourney. Uh, he's very much not the champion. Uh, but he is the tragic kind of champion at the tourney of Ashford Meadow. Yes, not really celebrated as such, but he, he did win the Trial of Seven. So it's the gray stone giant thing, which really is a match. Dunk is indeed a gray giant in gray iron plate armor fighting against an Uthor. This tourney is held at a place called White Walls, whereas Uthor took Maris to the White High Tower. Uthor Underleaf doesn't steal a woman from Dunk, as Uthor is implied to have, although really it just says, but she wed Uthor of the High Tower, which does not imply an induction, so maybe Maris just didn't want to marry a stinking stone giant. I mean, who can blame her? But anyways, the point is, Dunk the Grey Giant 
doesn't come to Uthor Underleaf roaring for his bride back, no. What Uthor has of Dunks is not a bride, but a horse, the beloved Thunder. And I'm very sorry to compare Maris the most fair maid to a horse, sorry, but there it is. The Storm God's Thunderbolt really was a piece of the Moon Goddess falling like a star, so there you go. Thick as a castle wall also implies him as a gray stone giant as well. That is another layer of stone, yes. And there's there's more lines that add on to that symbolism. So kidding aside now, Maris the Maid and Thunder the Horse, they don't actually need to parallel each other. The parallel is with Uthor and Dunk versus Uthor Hightower and Argos Stoneskin. And in both cases, the Uthor character takes something that the gray giant character wants back very badly. Point being... Uthor Underleaf is an intentional parallel to Uthor Hightower, I think it's safe to say. And Uthor Underleaf is a green knight who lives under a leaf, like a green seer lives under a tree. Uthor Hightower might even be able to see more than we think from that Hightower, huh? So again, this simply means he's the Azor High figure, stealing moon maidens and becoming a green seer. And think about the Hightower sigil. It's a white tower with the red crown of flame on top. And the red leaves of the weirwoods are called both a blaze of flame and a crown. And of course, the weirwoods are white. So the Hightower sigil actually makes a pretty good weirwood symbol there. And that makes sense for our monomyth, Azor High, Uthor Hightower, stealing Maris the Maid in going into the um, weirwoods together. So there you have it. Since we've talked about Maris and Uthor, let's tackle the great giant himself, Argos Stoneskin, even though he seems pretty heavy and pretty hard to tackle. In all seriousness, Argoth is a pretty mysterious element. I mean, we've heard of stone giants called the Jogwin in far-off eastern Essos, but apart from that, it's hard to figure out what to make of Argoth Stoneskin. I think it's Probably unlikely someone with a massive grayscale infection would be allowed to compete in a tournament to marry the most fair maiden. And also, I would say it's not likely that someone so afflicted could be the champion of attorney, but you can't rule out magic, I guess. Um, Maybe we'll see someone's grayscale frozen like Shireen, but in a more advanced state that leaves them like completely stone, but not crazy and contagious. I don't know. I mean, it's possible. So in any case, much to my delight, I have found that This tale of Argoth and Maris and Uthor Hightower is actually a scrambled version of the tale of Argus, Hermes, and Io, a myth which serves as a possible inspiration for part of the Song of Ice and Fire moon disaster. Argoth is essentially a version of Argus, who is also a giant, and his stone skin symbolism is there for purposes of mythical astronomy. It quickly becomes clear. Let me explain. Better yet... Let me borrow the summary of the Io myth from GreekMythology.com. Io was the princess of Argos, who Zeus fell in love with. To try to keep Hera from noticing, he covered the world with a blanket of clouds. However, as soon as Hera saw that, she immediately became suspicious. She came down from Mount Olympus and began dispersing the clouds. Zeus did some quick thinking and changed Io's form from a lovely maiden. So as the clouds dispersed, Hera found Zeus standing next to a white heifer. He then swore he had never seen the cow before and it just sprang right out of the earth. Seeing right through this, Hera faked liking the cow so much that she wanted to have it as a present. 
as turning such a reasonable request down would have given the whole thing away, Zeus presented Hera with the cow. She sent the cow away, and arranged Argos Panoptes to watch over it. Since Argos had a hundred eyes and could have some of them sleep while keeping others awake, he made for a fine watchman. All right, so let me go ahead and cut in here. There's actually more of this myth to read, but let me cut in here uh, for a moment to point out a few things. So Io is a moon maiden. In fact, one of Jupiter's moons is named after her. And she's actually considered a moon maiden by the Greeks before uh, scientists named a moon after her. That's why they named it after her. It's not always the case, um, but it is the case in this one. So as we discussed in the Moons of Ice and Fire series, Io is actually the logical moon for George to use as a prototype for the idea of a magical fire moon, which is a thing that I think he's done, because Io is entirely made up of magma and silicate rock, meaning that it's basically a round floating volcano. And Io is also one of the most famous moons in our solar system. The ancient Greeks associated the goddess Io with the moon, and in Aeschylus's Prometheus Bound, which is all about Prometheus, and in that book, in that writing, Io encounters a bound Prometheus, hence the title, and refers to herself as the horned virgin, which is understood to refer to both lunar horns and bovine horns. And also notice the virgin part. Io is yet another fair maiden, like Maris the Maid and Virgo and Virgin Mary and Brienne the Beauty. This entire myth graphs onto A Song of Ice and Fire, Moon Disaster, uh, the A Song of Ice and Fire, Moon Disaster, very well, beginning with Zeus covering the world in clouds to hide his love of Io, which reminds us of the long night, of course, when the sun and moon kissed and birthed meteor children who covered the earth with clouds of ash and smoke. When Io is transformed into a lunar cow, she is actually tethered to an olive tree in the temple of Hera. It's important to remember that the Greek mythmakers here understood Io to represent the moon, so this is actually Greek mythical astronomy. Io, the lunar cow, walking in circles around the olive tree that she's tethered to in the temple is a depiction of the moon orbiting the Earth's axis which is regarded as the cosmic axis by ancient man, observing the stars from Earth's vantage point as they were. Maris, the most fair maid, is the Io of the story, and she ends up sort of locked away in the high tower, while Argos rages outside, which is kind of like being tied to a tree, locked in a white tower, which again, kind of could be a symbol for the weirwood tree. So who is Argus? Translated into mythical astronomy meaning what role is Argoth Stoneskin playing in the myth? Well, I think we can see him as the moon's stone skin. Let me explain. Argus Panoptes, from the Greek myth, is called the many-eyed giant. That's what Panoptes means, many eyes. And we've seen the moon meteors symbolized as eyes many times. Therefore, I think Maris, is, we, should, uh, we should think of her as the heart of the moon, and her rightful husband, Argoth Stoneskin, the gray giant, would be like the moon's stony crust. The moon is a gray giant with stone skin. I'm sure that's easy to see. And Io is a moon with stone skin. So there you go. So just, just to be clear, if you think of Io as the heart of the fire moon, she's got a giant guarding her, okay? Like protecting her, encircling her, like the crust of the moon. And so when... 
Maris the Most Fair is taken from Argoth's stone skin that's basically like ripping the heart out of the moon, and the fallen moon meteor uh, can be thought of as the heart of a fallen star. So I think that all works pretty well. But I'm going to go ahead and uh, pick up the tale of Igo and Argus. Desperate, Zeus sent Hermes to fetch Io. Disguised as a shepherd, Hermes had to employ all his skill as a musician and storyteller to gain Argus' confidence and lull him to sleep. Once asleep, Hermes killed Argus. Later, Hera took his eyes and set them into the tail of her favourite bird, the peacock. So, uh, cutting in again for a moment, I will point out that Hermes, the messenger, would certainly equate to the red comet, the red messenger. In these sun-kill-moon metaphor scenes, the comet is usually depicted as being the sword of the solar king that stabs the moon goddess, and here, Zeus sends Hermes to slay Argus, just as the sun sends the comet to slay the moon. I'm not sure what peacocks have to do with anything, although there is some cool peacock symbolism I've seen people look into, Uh, but let's continue with the story here. While Io was now free, Hera sent the mother of all gadflies to sting the still bovine Io. The ghost of Argus pursued her as well. This pushed her towards madness, and in her efforts to escape, she wandered the world. During her journeys, she came across Prometheus while still chained, who gave her hope. He predicted that although she would have to wander for many years, she would eventually be changed back into human form and would bear a child. He predicted that a descendant of this child would be a great hero and would set him free. His predictions came true. Because of her journeys, many geographical features were named after her, including the Ionian Sea and the Bosphorus, which means Ford of the Cow. She eventually reached the Nile, where Zeus restored her human form. She bore a Paphos, and eleven generations later, her descendant Heracles would set Prometheus free. So the part about Io wandering when her guardian is slain is the Greek mythmaker implying a moon which has wandered off of its course, untethered somehow from its cosmic axis tree. In A Song of Ice and Fire terms, George has given us a moon goddess that wanders too close to the sun, cracks from the heat, and drops her stone skin from the sky in the form of dragon-like meteors. The detail about the ghost of Argus pursuing Io made its way into the A Song of Ice and Fire version of the story, as Argoth's stone skin raging outside the walls of Old Town for his bride. I think it's easy to see. Argus and Argoth can both eat their hearts out, though, because Io turned back into a beautiful woman and bore Zeus's baby, and Maris presumably helped Uthor found House Hightower by spitting out some Hightower babies. Meanwhile, Uthor of the Hightower, who was possibly descended of dragon people, He now possesses the heart of the Moon Maiden, Maris the Most Fair. If Argoth is the stone skin, Maris the Most Fair is the heart of the fallen star, which represents the fire of the gods or the special meteor that we need to make a magic sword with. Either way, Uthor now possesses the fire of the gods, just like Sir Galadon being given the just maid from the maiden herself, uh, because Uthor has been given the heart of the Moon Maiden, uh, just like the maiden lost her heart to Galadon. So, hence, the uh, crown of flame sigil that burns atop the white tower in the high tower sigil. Like I said, it, he's got the fire of the gods. And that's the same thing that the burning leaves of the weirwood trees symbolize, the fire of the gods. So, all the symbolism is in alignment. Now, interestingly, Uther Pendragon of the Arthurian legend actually kills almost all the living dragons. 
And the world of ice and fire tells us there are stories of the first high towers finding dragons roosting on that few stone fortress on Battle Isle when they got there. Dragons that they had to kill. How old is Old Town, truly? Many a maester has pondered that question, but we simply do not know. The origins of the city are lost in the mists of time and clouded by legend. Some ignorant septons claim that the seven themselves laid out its boundaries, other men that dragons once roosted on the Battle Isle until the first high tower put an end to them. So Galadon was a dragon slayer. Uther Pendragon was a dragon slayer. And the first high towers may have been dragon slayers as well. And there are solid theories about the high towers also being part of a plot to kill off the last Targaryen dragons too, for what it's worth. Now, building on my pet theory about Dawn being a dragon killer sword, just like the Just Made, consider that I've pointed out before that the Danes and Hightowers seem to be in the same boat of symbolism in many ways, particularly as Westerosi first men houses, which actually descend from the Great Empire of the Dawn, and who may have turned against the evil Azor Ahai and fought on Team Westeros when he invaded, assuming that that is a thing which happened. For example, Uther Pendragon is the son of... King Arthur, right? But Uther Hightower is the founder of House Hightower, whereas Arthur Dane is the most famous guy from House Dane. So right there, there's a pretty strong link. Then we have Starfall, has the pale stone sword tower, a white tower, and a glowing pale sword, while Starfall has the white tower crowned with flame sigil and the we light the way house words. Uh, and of course, I don't think it's a coincidence that Gerald Hightower, the white bull, stands alongside Sir Arthur Dane at the Tower of Joy because, of course, Dane and Hightower have been basically playing on the same team for a long time now. We've also got a Gerald Hightower, who is, uh, that's Darkstar's real name, which is like a mashup of Gerald Hightower and Arthur Dane. All of this uh, helps set up the triple parallel between Uther Hightower, Galadon of Morn, and the first Dane, who followed the falling star and made dawn from the pale stone meteorite of magic power that he found. Uthor possessed Maris the Moon Maiden in his flaming white tower. Galadon of Morn won the heart of the Celestial Maiden and won a magic sword, the Just Made. And the Danes possessed the heart of a fallen star from which they made a magic sword. The High Towers and Galadon are rumored dragon slayers, so can dawn slay dragons? Another clue about this is... There is both a Davos Dane in recent times and a Davos Dragon Slayer, legend from the Age of Heroes. So that's another clue about Danes and killing dragons. Guys, this is a thing. I'm telling you, we are going to see Dawn kill a dragon, probably in, his, in the last book, I would say. Isn't that going to be cool? So lest you think that Maris, the most fair maid, would wriggle out of some sort of Night's Watch symbolism, think again. When the wildlings come through the wall in a dance with dragons, when John lets them through the wall, John stations the spearwives in their own castle, Long Barrow, so as to avoid any sort of, you know, Danny Flint situations. John does have to station a couple of actual Night's Watch brothers there to keep things running, and he chooses two men that he thinks he can trust well, Dolorous Ed, of course, and Iron Emmett, the former master-at-arms at Castle Black. That leads to this very funny exchange when Dolorous Ed returns to Castle Black and reports back to John. The place was overrun with rats when we moved in. The spearwives killed the nasty buggers. Now the place is overrun with spearwives. There's days I want the rats back. 
How do you find serving under Iron Emma? John asked. Mostly it's Black Maris serving under him, my lord. Ed's got, uh, that's one of Ed's more like understated jokes, I would say. They are going very far here to suggest Maris as a night's watchman, though. And kidding aside, she's Black Maris, like the Black Brothers. She's serving under the Lord Commander, and she's manning one of the forts on the wall. So once again, we see that Garth's children are implied as joining the Night's Watch in some way. We also had a Runcel Hightower, who was the Lord Commander of the Watch. However, he disgraced himself by trying to make the position hereditary. A Lord Commander sort of breaking the rules, trying to set up a sort of a hereditary monarchy there. Very Knights King-like. And there's also... Garth of Old Town in the Watch. He's one of three Garths who joined the Watch. He's not a high tower, uh, but I would, thought I would mention him anyway since he's Garth of Old Town, and Uther High Tower married a daughter of Garth. So, there's one other Maris, and she's a fair maid too. Although, like Brienne, the name is somewhat ironic. And here I speak of Pretty Maris. Shout out to Joe Magician of the Joe Magician YouTube channel, who has a great video on Pretty Maris. Pretty Maris is the official torturer of the Windblown, a sellsword company from Essos that we meet in a dance with dragons. She's said to be able to stretch out a man's dying for a moon's turn. Very interesting. She's got no ears and scars on her face, and she's survived countless horrors. As a result, she has eyes as cold and dead as two gray stones, according to Quentin. That sounds like Moon Meteor talk as well as Night's Queen, Corpse Queen talk, and harkens to mind the gray giant Argoth stone skin as a description of the moon. Maris seems like the vengeful sort of Moon Meteor, in other words, and that in turn helps with our identification of Maris the most fair as a moon maiden. John the Oak. This section is dedicated to our acolytes of starry wisdom. Shiera Luen Elen, the blue star of heaven and resident linguist of the podcast. As Duty Liberi, called Island's Bane and the Silent Blade. Silas the Redbeard, chief of the Redsmiths. Sir Therion Black, the Justiciar, bearer of the Valerian Steel Sword Altar Rage. Greenfoot the Gorgeous, mirror of House Gardener, keeper of the Glass Gardens and bearer of the Sea Dragon's Torch. And the Dread Pirate Baron, the Demon Deacon, whose direwolf is called Megantic. All right, it's John the Oak time. This was actually some of the most fun stuff that I turned up while researching the project. Although you might think John the Oak sounds, you know, a little boring, maybe perhaps not as interesting as Brandon of the Bloody Blade, but it turns out that, no, he's quite interesting fellow. So first of all, I have to tell you that if you were trying to figure out this Zodiac puzzle on your own, this was one of the hardest ones. It's almost unfairly difficult. And I was only able to figure it out, really, because I just happened to be a big fan of both the constellation Ophiuchus and the myth of Astraea. Astraea was the big tip-off that we're supposed to combine Virgo and Libra for this puzzle, which creates a hole in the zodiac, an empty chair, if you will. Let's listen to the tale of John the Oak, and then I'll tell you who I think that replacement is. John the Oak, the first knight who brought chivalry to Westeros. A huge man, all agree, eight feet tall in some tales, ten or twelve feet tall in others, sired by Garth Greenhand on a giantess. His own descendants became the Oak Hearts of Old Oak. 
Ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce you to the constellation Ophiuchus, the Serpent Bearer, one of my favorite constellations. I have to say I was thrilled to discover George making use of Ophiuchus mythology. Ophiuchus is a giant dude wrestling a snake, which is sort of wound behind his waist and around his wrists, and he can serve as a zodiac constellation because his feet stand astride the path of the ecliptic. He appears to stand on top of Scorpio, actually, and was perceived as doing just that in some myths. So, Ophiuchus is kind of a badass. He wrestles snakes and tramples scorpions. That's one of the things which helps us identify Ophiuchus with John the Oak and House Oakhart. Ophiuchus is a giant who fights with snakes and scorpions, while John the Oak is a half-giant and House Oakhart has been the mortal enemies of the snakes and scorpions from Dorne for thousands of years. Check out this passage from Ari's Oakhart's The Soiled Night chapter of A Feast for Crows, which makes it abundantly clear. The Dornish garb was comfortable, but his father would have been aghast had he lived to see his son so dressed. He was a man of the reach, and the Dornish were his ancient foes, as the tapestries at Old Oak bore witness. Aris only had to close his eyes to see them still. Lord Edgaran the open-handed, seated in splendour with the heads of a hundred Dornishmen piled round his feet. The three leaves in the prince's pass, pierced by Dornish spears, Alistair sounding his war-horn with his last breath. Sir Olivar the green oak, all in white, dying at the side of the young dragon. Dawn is no fit place for any oak heart. The hostility is quite mutual, as we hear from the other side of the feud when Gerald Darkstardane speaks of Ares and the Oakhearts, also in A Feast for Crows. No, my lady, what I know is that Danes have been killing Oakhearts for several thousand years. His arrogance took her breath away. It seems to me that Oakhearts have been killing Danes for just as long. We all have our family traditions. So, there you go. This is a seriously old and hateful enmity, exceeding that of even the Blackwoods and the Brackens, perhaps, who, after all, have married into each other's families on occasion. I don't think any Oakharts have married any Danes, not recently, anyways, and perhaps not ever. Of all the houses in the Reach, the Oakharts might even have some kind of extra-special hatred for the Dornish. Any Dornish, it would seem. This one-liner from the World of Ice and Fire, referring to some mysteriously horrible events of Aegon's conquest, is perhaps the most ominous of all. Worse occurred at the hands of the Will of Will, whose deeds we need not recount. They are infamous enough and still remembered, especially in Thornton and Old Oak. Nobody has any idea what these infamous deeds are. We just haven't been told. But folks, if they're too horrible to speak of, in the context of a George R. R. Martin story, then they must be really bad. Think about it. But then, check out the sigil of House Will, a black adder biting a heel on yellow. Thus, we can see a correlation between House Oakhart, think John the Oak, the giant, being savaged by House Will, the snake biting its heel. It's very similar to Ophiuchus, who wrestles a snake while a scorpion bites its, or stings, his heel, I guess you'd say. That's right, Ophiuchus doesn't get a free pass for trampling the scorpion, as many depictions of Ophiuchus have the scorpion stinging one of his heels. There's a bit more about Ophiuchus, which is relevant to his Song of Ice and Fire, 
and I'm paraphrasing this summary from the good old Wikipedia. The older Greek myths saw Ophiuchus as the god Apollo, wrestling a huge snake that guarded the oracle of Delphi, while later myths identified Ophiuchus with Laocoon, the Trojan priest of Poseidon, who warned his fellow Trojans about the Trojan horse and was later slain by a pair of sea serpents sent by the gods to punish him. So, different myth, but again, you can see the idea of a hero being wrestled or attacked by snakes. We can see the influence of Apollo in A Song of Ice and Fire much more strongly in the form of Rhaegar and the Valyrians in general, as opposed to House Oakhart, but I will tell you that there are a couple of things about Apollo that might apply to House Oakhart. So, Apollo is a complex deity, but he's often merged with the figure of Helios, making Apollo a sun god. His chief epithet is Phobos, which means bright, and whether or not he's merged with Helios, he's always considered the god of light, or dare we say, the lord of light. Another of his titles is Apollo Phaneus, which means light-bringing. Sometime we'll have to talk about the Rhaegar-Apollo parallels, as they're pretty good. They have to do with shepherds and harps and things like that. The Trojan fellow, the priest of Poseidon, who warned of the Trojan horse, I don't think he has too much bearing on A Song of Ice and Fire, but I mentioned him mostly to point out that the Greeks actually did not have a super strong bead on their interpretation of Ophiuchus. They had a few. However, a few, a few, a few, a few, okay. So, however, the Romans, who adopted most of the Greek pantheon, actually remedied this with what turns out to be the most widely known association of the Ophiuchus constellation, Asclepius. Asclepius was a legendary healer who learned the secrets of keeping death at bay after observing one serpent bringing another healing herbs. Now, Asclepius was actually a son of Apollo, and both of them bore the title of the healer. The familiar snake wound around a staff symbol, which stands for healing, is known, of course, as the Rod of Asclepius. So you can see why the Romans might see Ophiuchus, a man wrestling a serpent, as Asclepius. And he's already a son of Apollo anyway, so it's really not that much of a change. I mean, Apollo, if he's perceived as the sun god, as he is in some cases, then, you know, he doesn't really need a constellation too, right? Don't be greedy, man. Anyway, the story of Asclepius takes a turn when, to prevent the entire human race from becoming immortal under Asclepius' expert care, Jupiter, a.k.a. Zeus, kills him with a bolt of lightning. Silver lining, though. Zeus later places his image in the heavens to honor his good works. So think about that for a second. Asclepius's healing skills were so good that he essentially obtained the grail of immortality, the keys to defeating death. As we know, that's an especially grievous sin in the world of A Song of Ice and Fire, and Zeus apparently thought so too, striking him down with lightning. This story bears certain resemblances to George's Grey King myth, of his obtaining the fire of the gods by means of the storm god setting a tree ablaze with a thunderbolt. But more importantly, we can recognize the general theme as being the familiar Luciferian Promethean theme of challenging the gods by taking their power and seeking to become like them. And of course, we know that is the dominant theme of the Azor Ahai archetype or monomyth. You may even recall the high priest of the Red Temple saying something about all those who die fighting for Azor Ahai Reborn being themselves reborn, which makes Azor High Reborn sound like a kind of raiser of the dead, someone who can defeat death, kind of like Asclepius. 
In Greek lore, the serpent was a sacred animal associated with wisdom, healing, and resurrection. And so the figure of a man successfully controlling and containing the serpent would indeed represent a kind of mastery over these things. Again, reminded of Azor Ahai possessing the fire of the gods in the form of Lightbringer, a sword which is symbolic of dragons, a.k.a. fiery snakes, and comets. Interestingly, the notion of Ophiuchus as a tamer of snakes was found outside the Western world, too. In medieval Islamic astronomy, Azafi's Aronometry, 10th century, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that, of course, the constellation was known as Al-Hawa, the snake charmer. So now let's think about John the Oak and the Oak Hearts who descend from him. John the Oak is half-giant, and he's called the Oak, which kind of makes him sound like a tree person, and obviously reminds us of a weirwood tree, since Oak Heart implies a tree with a heart, like a heart tree. And of course, oaks can sometimes stand in for weirwoods as heart trees when no weirwoods are available. Now, since John the Oak is both tree and man, think for a moment about Ophiuchus as a tree person with a snake wrapped around it instead of a man with a snake wrapped around him. You basically get the rod of Asclepius, a snake wrapped around a staff or a tree. We're going to start bringing Ari's oak heart into the mix here as well. And if you'll forgive my juvenile humor, Ares has a snake wrapped around him as well, meaning Ariane Martel, who absolutely plays Ares like a fiddle, using his infatuation to manipulate him into committing treason and eventually suicide. Take a look at Ariane in this scene where Ares goes to meet her in secret in his soiled night chapter of A Feast for Crows. He saw patterned Myrish carpets underneath his sandals, a tapestry upon one wall, a bed, my lady, he called, where are you? Here. She stepped out from the shadow behind the door. An ornate snake coiled around her right forearm, its copper and gold scales glimmering when she moved. It was all she wore. During their lovemaking, Ariane is put in the snake roll, as it says, when she wrapped her legs around him, they felt as strong as steel. Ariane is very like the metal snake that she's wearing, in other words. And in another scene, Ario Hota observes Ariane wearing snakeskin sandals laced up to her thighs, which enhances the mental image of Ariane's legs being like snakes as they wrestle Sir Ares. Ariane also rakes his back, drawing blood, so you could almost say that she bit him, in other words. Ares is kind of a poor Ophiuchus, and he's losing this wrestling match, I think we can say. Finally, Ariane offers to share Sir Ares with one of her sand snake cousins, which may be nothing, or it may be intended to complete the snakes wrapping around Sir Ares theme. The snake entry motif is important to pick up on for a couple of reasons. It also suggests the Garden of Eden, which has all the same themes about immortality and man seeking to become like a god and a wise serpent. And of course, that's a big influence on the overarching Azor Ahai myth. The idea of a snake of knowledge and immortality wrapping around a tree person also makes us think of the Grey King mythology, where a sea dragon meteor supposedly set fire to a tree, enabling the Grey King to enable the fire of the gods. The meteor setting the tree on fire is, of course, primarily a metaphor for Azor Ahai, the dragon, entering the weirwood net, and we're going to see a scene just like that with Sir Ares in just a moment. 
And although I'd say the weirwood tree is more wrapped around Bloodraven than the other way around, uh, anytime you speak of snakes and trees together, we do have to mention Yggdrasil with its Nidhogg serpent beneath it, and Bloodraven the dragon amongst the white serpent weirwood roots. And come to think about it, if the weirwood roots are like white serpents, then we do indeed have the Ophiuchus symbolism of snakes wrapping around a person, a tree person in particular. That person, of course, is a green seer, Blood Raven, just as John the Oak may have been a skin changer or one with the green gifts. I mentioned that statue of Apollo at the Oracle of Delphi, which has Apollo wrestling a snake, so the snake wrapping and wrestling stuff can also work as a call out to Apollo. Oddly enough, if we go back to that quote where Ares thinks of the tapestries at Old Oak depicting the death of Dornishmen and whatnot, there is a line that I didn't include that makes Ares an honorary sun god, like the form of Apollo that is merged with Helios. His hand drifted down to brush lightly over the hilt on the longsword that hung half-hidden among the folds of his layered linen robes, the outer with its turquoise stripes and rows of golden suns, and the lighter orange one beneath. The Dornish garb was comfortable, but his father would have been aghast had he lived to see his son so dressed. Not only is Ares wearing suns on his clothing, George slyly makes mention of his father, so that he can refer to Ares as his father's son, reinforcing Ares as an Apollo Helios sun figure. I don't want to break down the entire death scene at the boat on the green blood with Aria Hota and Marcella and Ariane and Darkstar and all that, but I will tell you that Ares is actually not playing the role of an other there, despite his status as a white knight of the Kingsguard. I know, I know, I, I hate to throw you such a curveball, but Azorahai's Lightbringer was white-hot and smoking before he stabbed Nissa Nissa with it. And that's exactly the role that Ari's Oakheart is playing, leading up to his death, as he's led through the desert sands of Dorne, being sunburned and reddened or heated up all the way, with Arion wondering if he'll actually cook in his armor. So that's like a sword being heated up in the fire. And then when he has sex with Arion, a snaky Nissa Nissa figure who was hot to the touch, Ares can be imagined as the white-hot sword stabbing Nissa Nissa, if you will. His sword will be shining silver in his death scene, which gives him more shining, white-hot, white-and-gray sword symbolism. And of course, in the actual lovemaking scene, Ares looks up at the ceiling and notices a large crack running across it, thinking to himself, man, I was just so wrapped up in this, I didn't even notice the crack in the ceiling. In fact, there could have been a dragon looking in the window, and I wouldn't have even noticed. Which gives you sort of the cracking open of the heavens symbolism, as well as dragons sort of peering in from the heavens waiting to be born. But let's go to that death scene, because it's got some great symbolism. When we look there, we find a different moon maiden, not Arion, but Marcella, being wounded across the face by a dastardly dragonlord-looking dude, a dark star. Ares himself dies a sort of sacrificial, foolish Azor high death, very akin to Dantos or Viserys. The key line is when his head is cut off. The White Knight raised his blade too slowly. Hotar's long axe took his right arm off at the shoulder, spun away spraying blood, and came flashing back in a terrible two-handed slash that removed the head of Aris Oakheart and sent it spinning through the air. It landed amongst the reeds, and the green blood swallowed the red with a soft splash. All right, we've got some Hammer of the Waters injuries, arm and neck, and here in Dorne, no less. 
they came from an axe as opposed to a hammer, but since the ancient Andals seem to have used those two symbols interchangeably, according to the maesters, it's certainly close enough. And of course, you'll remember the sun beating down like a fiery hammer only a couple paragraphs before this confrontation. Grabbing our attention here is the green blood swallowing the red. That's kind of the highlight and the clincher for identifying Ares as playing the Azor High role. He's losing his life to enter the green blood of the Weirwoodnet, the Green Sea, and immediately following a Nissanissa Moon Maiden event, Marcella's wounding, and a sharp set of Hammer of the Waters injuries. This might make him a green zombie candidate, with the green blood river that drinks his blood standing in for the pool beneath the Winterfell heart tree that drinks the blood of the victim's sacrifice to it. And of course, both of those are symbols of the Weirwoodnet as a sea that receives the blood of those who wish to enter it. The boat that Arya Hota is standing on is itself a weirwood symbol too. It's a wooden boat that navigates the green blood, the green sea, if you will, and it's very comparable to the symbolic idea of the Grey King sealing a weirwood ship in the green sea. And check out the quotes about the boat. First we find it hidden beneath the drooping branches of a great green willow, meaning it's under a green tree in the green water, and then we have the boat itself being described. This one was done in shades of green, with a curved wooden tiller shaped like a mermaid, and fish faces peering through her rails. Poles and ropes and jars of olive oil cluttered her decks, and iron lanterns swung fore and aft. A green mermaid boat, with iron, oil and fire on board, as if it's about to catch fire. It's a jumble of fire moon and sea dragon symbols, basically, including the burning boat symbol. Ario's monstrous axe adds to the weirwood symbolism as well. He calls it his ash and iron wife because it has a pole of ash wood, and as we've discussed in the Weirwood Goddess series, this is a symbol of the ash tree, Yggdrasil, and thus to the weirwoods and the weirwood goddess. And again, Ario creepily calls the ash and iron axe his wife. There you go. Ario on the green mermaid boat dispensing justice to Azor High is essentially a Nissa Nissa's revenge scene. There's actually another good clue about Ari's Okart trying to fly like a green seer as he enters the green blood. As he charges the boat, his horse is feathered with crossbow bolts, making it a sort of winged horse. It also seems symbolically appropriate that Ari's Okart was cut down by an axe, since his sigil is three oak leaves on gold, and he has a spreading oak tree worked upon the breast of his tunic in shining gold thread. This symbolism, combined with his descent from John the Oak, who's implied as a tree person himself, kind of makes Ares an honorary oak tree, who was cut down by an axe. All right, so to finish up with John the Oak and the Oak Hearts, let's talk about their Night's Watch symbolism. It's a bit cryptic, as we don't have any Oak Hearts in the Watch, or anyone named John in the Watch. Oh, wait a minute. Well, we do have a John, I suppose. But remembering that John the Oak was said to have been fathered on a giantess, Check out this scene. But the gate was a crooked tunnel through the ice, smaller than any castle gate in the Seven Kingdoms, so narrow that rangers must lead their garrons through single file. Three iron grates closed the inner passage, each locked and chained and protected by a murder hole. The outer door was old oak, nine inches thick and studded with iron, not easy to break through. But Mance has mammoths, he reminded himself and giants as well. Old Oak is actually the place the Oak Hearts are from, and this Old Oak Gate is being pitted against giants. 
It's like the giants coming to Old Oak and playing Come Into My Castle, which is an obvious euphemism for sex, as is Smashing My Portcullis. And look, it's a guy named John inspecting the Old Oak, like John the Oak, who established Old Oak. There you go. Here's the Old Oak Gate after the fight. The last 20 feet of the tunnel was where they'd fought and died. The outer door of the studded oak had been hacked and broken and finally torn off its hinges, and one of the giants had crawled in through the splinters. The lantern bathed the grisly scene in a sullen, reddish light. Pip turned aside to wretch, and John found himself envying Maester Eamon his blindness. It kind of reminds me of the horrific deeds of the wills being remembered at Old Oak. Here, the grisly scene at the Old Oak Gate is so horrific that Pip has to wretch, and John wishes he was blind. The giant has come to Old Oak, so to speak. Giants are often associated with oaks as it happens, not only in that last scene, but in John's Azor High dream of defending the wall with a burning red sword and a bunch of burning scarecrow brothers, which is, of course, a trademark green zombie scene. There's a line there that says, Giants lumbered amongst them, 40 feet tall, with malls the size of oak trees. What would be really nice is if we could get one of those giants on the watch, so then we could have a giant oak-wielding fellow on the watch for symbolism's sake, and indeed. Woon Woon, the giant, does sort of join the watch in the sense that he comes to Castle Black and is put to work as a builder of sorts. Woon Woon also has an oaken weapon, a stone maul with an oaken shaft. Now, when he wakes up in the Weirwood Grove of Nine scene with John before he comes to Castle Black, it was like a boulder coming to life, which is sort of like a combination of giants waking in the earth and a stone moon exploding into meteor childbirth, events which I think are related, of course. Finally, I will close by again noting that oak trees are the second choice for heart trees when no weirwoods are available, as we see in the King's Landing Godswood when Ned prays there in a clash of kings. It's an oak heart tree. An oak heart tree. Anyways, better still is the huge, meaning giant, oak tree that the wildlings carve a face into south of the wall in a dance with dragons. Just north of Molestown, they came upon the third watcher, carved into the huge oak that marked the village perimeter, its deep eyes fixed upon the king's road. That is not a friendly face, Jon Snow reflected. The faces that the first men and the children of the forest had carved into the werewoods in Eon's past had stern or savage visages more often than not, but the great oak looked especially angry, as if it were about to tear its roots from the earth and come roaring after them. Its wounds are as fresh as the wounds of the men who carved it. It's a huge oak, like John the Oak, who was part giant. It's a watcher, like the watchers on the wall, or like the others, who are called watchers twice in the prologue of A Game of Thrones. It's a heart tree, so it's already kind of like a tree person, and this one is suggested as being ready to tear up its roots and walk, like a tree ent from The Lord of the Rings. And my favorite giant in Oak quote is, fittingly, tied to the Night's Watch, and it's one we've read before. Giant had crammed himself inside the hollow of a dead oak. How do you like me castle, Lord Snow? A Night's Watch ranger wearing the skin of a dead oak? This is basically like saying an undead oak tree person became a Night's Watch ranger. A green zombie, in other words, an undead tree person, who is also a giant oak, since the ranger's name is Giant, and he's living in an oak tree. 
on the most basic level, a Night's Watch ranger living in a tree suggests a Green Seer Night's Watchman anyway. And that's the entire point of this entire exercise about the green zombies and the Zodiac children. They are Green Seer Night's Watchmen. Ta-da! Owen Oakenshield. This section is dedicated to the longtime Patreon support of Melanie Lot 7, aka the child of the forest known as Feather Crow, the Weirdcat Dryad, and earthly avatar of Heavenly House Capricorn, as well as our acolytes of Starry Wisdom, Rupi the Funketeer, Archmaster of Synesthesia, Edward Greenhand, the Transplanting Transplant with a History of History, Icarus Drowning, the Public Eye. Mystica Fairy, Reddish Star of the North and Fire Jewel Fairy Locked in Ice, Matanus, Alaskan God of Thunder and Sex, the Cookie Burner, and Virginie, the Selicarian, Master of Homing Away. Here's a bit of a challenging one. There's really not much to go on, and it's hard to know what to make of what we do get. Owen Oakenshield who conquered the Shield Islands, driving the Selkies and the Merlings back into the sea. I believe what we have here is a case of reverse association. Capricorn is the sea goat, a creature which is basically a goat with a fish tail instead of hind legs, and some legends associate it with a man who can transform into the sea goat. That's rather Merling-like, and Owen Oakenshield is the only child of Garth with fish people involved in their legends, so it might be a good potential match. We'll have to dig further, though. Now, a closer look at a few of the myths associated with Capricorn make the links more apparent. One legend sometimes identified with Capricorn is the tale of the goat-horned god Pan, giving himself a fish's tail so that he might escape the monster known as Typhon. That's pretty on the nose, as it casts Capricorn as a horned green man figure who escaped into the sea. Right away, you can see that this myth is a natural fit for George Martin's Green Sea, Green Seer wordplay that Ravenous Reader discovered, which we explained in Weirwood Compendium 6, The Devil and the Deep Green Sea. The horned god transformed himself to enter the Green Sea. I mean, the story barely needs any alteration at all. It overlays with the story of Garth becoming trapped in the weir pretty much perfectly. Another Capricorn-related myth is that of Amalthea, the goat that suckled baby Zeus after his mother Rhea saved him from his father Cronus, who wanted to eat him as a tasty snack. A tasty little Zeus snack. Best of all, the goat Amalthea's broken horn was transformed into the cornucopia, a.k.a. the horn of plenty. And between that and Amalthea suckling the baby Zeus, we can see that the fertility and bounty of nature associations frequently found with horned creature mythology are present here as well. The other tale about nurturing baby Zeus was that of the Melii, if you recall from the Weirwood Goddess series, and the Melii are ash tree nymphs that seem to have influenced Martin's idea of the children of the forest, as well as the wildling spearwives as spear maidens who defend the sacred ash tree, which is, of course, the Weirwood in A Song of Ice and Fire. The most common seagoat myth is that of Pricus, the god of seagoats. He apparently has always been a seagoat, and will always be a seagoat, as he's immortal, so no transformation needed. Pricus is the son of Cronus, and like his father, he has power over time. This comes in handy because he has a bunch of little seagoat children who tend to walk onto land, lose their tails, and eventually forget how to talk. And Pricus actually turns back time repeatedly to try to prevent this. 
The sea goats, it seems, are wise and kind by nature, but they just keep walking ashore and turning into regular goats, which makes poor Prickus sad. Prickus's efforts at turning back the clock are in vain, however, because the little sea goats just keep doing the same thing every time. Prickus eventually begs Cronus to take away his immortality and just let him die because he can't bear to be the only sea goat. And yes, that's really sad now. But Prickus cannot die. He's an immortal, and so Cronus instead places him in the sky as the constellation Capricorn, so that he can keep watch over his goat children forever, even the ones high in the mountains, with the idea being that he can see them because he's up in space. The main takeaway here is that the Prickus story has much in common with Selkie and mermaid mythology, where the main tension is built around the idea of an aquatic humanoid who is sort of caught between land and sea, always doomed to love someone that they cannot be with. Most mermaid myths are romantic in nature, while Prickus loves his little seagoat children that keep wandering away, but it's still a very similar theme. Thus, I think it's safe to associate the Merlings and Selkies of the Owen Oakenshield story with Capricorn the seagoat. We might imagine Owen Oakenshield, the son of a horned fellow, driving off Prickus's little seagoat Merling children. Because, of course, in A Song of Ice and Fire, the seagoats aren't just happy little seagoats, they're nasty squishers and such. So that's pretty interesting. Owen, the son of Garth, is pitted against the implied horned folk coming out of the sea. We might simply regard the Merlings as therianthropic monsters from the sea. We are already inclined to view the children of Garth as Night's Watch figures, and indeed, there is a Night's Watch castle named Oakenshield. Interestingly, Oakenshield is eventually given to Tormund Giantsbane to command, with Tormund being a horny Garth figure for sure, although he's definitely a wintry version. So let's examine Tormund for a second and see if we can't find some more seagoat Capricorn clues. When Jon Snow is defending the wall against the wildling attacks in a storm of swords and using the far eye to spy on the enemy camp, we get a cool line about Tormund, the future lord of Oakenshield, and check out what he's eating. He still saw no sign of Mance Raider in the camp, but he spied Tormund Giantsbane and two of his sons around the turtle. The sons were struggling with the mammoth hide, while Tormund gnawed on the roast leg of a goat and bellowed orders. Not only is Tormund, the future lord of Oakenshield, gnawing on a goat, symbolizing Owen Oakenshield's war against the Merlings, which stand in for the sea goats of the Capricorn myth, there's an implication of Tormund and his sons being underwater here, as they're wrestling with a turtle. This idea continues when Jon speaks of Tormund again in A Dance with Dragons to Bowen Marsh. Bowen begins this quote commenting on the likelihood of the wildling survivors from the battle ever climbing the wall. Unlikely, said Bowen Marsh. These are not rangers out to steal a wife and some plunder. Tormund will have old women with him, children, herds of sheep and goats, even mammoths. He needs a gate, and only three of those remain. And if he should send climbers up, well... Defending against climbers is as simple as spearing fish in a kettle. Fish never climb out the kettle and shove a spear through your belly. John had climbed the wall himself. Okay, so now the wildlings who climb the wall are compared to fish climbing out of a kettle, reminiscent of the merlings and selkies coming out of the sea to battle Owen Oakenshield. Again, we can see Tormund paired with goats. Tormund has herds of goats and people who will be like fish when they climb the wall. Sea goat ahoy! 
More importantly, we've already tuned into the idea that the wall symbolizes the surface of the icy lake which imprisons the others, an imitation of Dante's frozen lake which traps the beast form of Lucifer in the ninth circle of hell. Thus, anyone climbing out of the frozen lake side of the wall, like the others when they finally invade, would be akin to Lucifer when he eventually breaks free of the icy lake just in time for Armageddon, as is tradition. Now that we know about the under-the-sea symbolism, we can see a new layer to the others and all their icy lake frozen pond symbolism. Recall that their voices are like the cracking of ice on a winter lake, for example. The notion of the others coming out of the frozen lake or climbing the wall with their ice spiders like fish climbing out of a kettle implies them as coming from the weirwood net, from the sea, which is exactly what we think about them already. They're the white walkers of the wood who emerge from the dark of the wood, whom George describes as being like icy versions of the ice she, the elf-like spirits of Irish folklore who are thought to be attached to certain mounds, which are themselves called the she. Icy elves, you say? Frozen spirits that walk the wood? Well, there are many other clues about this, which we still need to fully explore, but I think you can already see that the Merlings and Squishers, monstrous white fish people who come out of the sea to steal or eat human babies, function very well as analogs to the others, who are monstrous white ice people who come out of the sea of the weirwood net to, well, steal babies. So now think about the Owen Oakenshield myth once again. Here's a son of Garth, who shares a name with a Night's Watch castle, warring against monsters from the sea, who might represent the others. Now this is starting to make more sense, right? So check out that John scene at the Fist of the First Men, where he compares the haunted forest to a sea. When the wind blew, he could hear the creak and groan of branches older than he was. A thousand leaves fluttered, and for a moment, the forest seemed deep green sea, storm-tossed and heaving, eternal and unknowable. Ghost was not like to be alone down there, he thought. Anything could be moving under that sea, creeping toward the ring fort through the dark of the wood, concealed beneath those trees. Anything. How would they ever know? He stood there for a long time, until the sun vanished behind the sawtoothed mountains and darkness began to creep through the forest. The forest is like a deep green sea, and the others and their army of the dead are the shadows creeping through the dark of the wood, which is like a sea. To attack the Night's Watch, it should be noted. There's a lot more to the others' Merling's symbolism, but I am again hoping that I'm giving you enough to go on here to see how it works. Passages like this make it easier to see how a man named Oakenshield, battling the Merlings that come out of the sea, makes a good symbolic reference to the Night's Watch battling the others, the white shadows who come from the dark wood that is like a sea. Bouncing back to the Night's Watch, actually defending the wall in a storm of swords, we find a black brother named Owen. Not Owen Oakenshield, of course, but rather Owen the Oaf. And I'm sure it's just a coincidence that Oaf is one letter away from Oak. Call him Owen the Oafenshield. Anyways, check out the scene. But the gate was a crooked tunnel through the ice, smaller than any castle gate in the Seven Kingdoms, so narrow that rangers must lead their garrons through single file. Three iron grates closed the inner passage, each locked and chained and protected by a murder hole. The outer door was old oak, nine inches thick and studded with iron, not easy to break through. But Mance has mammoths, he reminded himself, and giants as well. Must be cold down there, 
said Noy. What say we warm them up, lads? A dozen jars of lamp oil had been lined up on the precipice. Pip ran down the line with a torch, setting them alight. Owen the O followed, shoving them over the edge one by one. Tongues of pale yellow fire swirled around the jars as they plunged downward. When the last was gone, Gren kicked loose the chocks on a bowl of pitch and sent it rumbling and rolling over the edge as well. The sounds below changed to shouts and screams, sweet music to their ears. That's some great last hero math in the form of moon meteor symbols. Twelve jars of burning lamp oil, think of oily black stone moon meteors on fire. And then for the plus one, we have a barrel of pitch, which is more burning black oily stuff, only bigger. Or perhaps we should think of Yintar, one of the five given names for Azor High, whose name translates, approximately, to Black Tar. Point is, like Sam's dozen dragonglass arrows and one spearhead, this is last hero math with black fire weaponry in the hands of the Night's Watch. Owen the Oaf is the one who shoves the dozen burning lamps off the edge, indicating the symbolic place of an Owen figure in the last hero's dozen. And here, of course, I'm referring to the idea of Owen Oakenshield, representing a son of Garth and one of the green zombies. Owen the Oaf is again shoving things off the edge of the wall to kill wildlings a bit later in the battle, and he really seems to get a kick out of killing the sea creatures that are trying to get through the wall, a la Owen Oakenshield killing the Merlings and Selkies on the Shield Islands. Gren got behind a barrel, put his shoulder against it, grunted, and began to push. Owen and Mully moved out to help him. They shoved the barrel out a foot, and then another, and suddenly it was gone. They heard the thump as it struck the wall on the way down, and then, much louder, the crash and crack of splintering wood, followed by shouts and screams. Satin Woot and Owen the Oaf danced in circles, while Pip leaned out and called, The turtle was stuffed full of rabbits. Look at them hop away. A turtle is not a sea goat, tis true, but again, it's close enough to the Owen Oakenshield myth that I have to mention it. Plus, the mental image of Owen the Oaf dancing in circles is pretty freaking funny. Owen also takes up the fiddle when everyone at Castle Black parties down as part of Alice Karstark's wedding, so he's quite the musical fellow, it seems. He even dances with Patchface, which everyone finds hysterically funny. Patchface is a horned person from the sea, very similar to the concept of a sea goat or a pan creature who turned into a sea goat, so maybe there's hope for healing the great Owen-slash-sea-creature divide that's been going on some eight to 12,000 years now. Patchface does offer to lead the Night's Watch into the sea and out again famously. Watch out for dead things in the water, though. Dead sea goats, if you're really unlucky. Now, regrettably, there aren't actual sea goats in A Song of Ice and Fire. However, we get something pretty close in the Asha Greyjoy Wayward Bride chapter. Yes, that's right. Which has the matching Green Sea Forest quotes to the John quote at the Fist of the First Men that we just read. You will all surely recall the basics. Asha can't see the sea because of the forest, which she compares to the sea and calls an ocean of leaves. Then she compares the sighing of the leaves of the forest, also called whisperings, to the waves of the sea, thinking that the sound they made was softer than the sea. Then we had the quote where Stannis' allies in the mountain clans of the north cloak themselves in leaves and branches and sneak through the ocean-like forest. And then here's the payoff paragraph. Asha saw only trees and shadows. 
the moonlit hills and the snowy peaks beyond. Then she realised that trees were creeping closer. Ho-ho, she laughed. These mountain goats have cloaked themselves in pine boughs. The woods were on the move, creeping toward the castle like a slow green tide. She thought back to a tale she had heard as a child, about the children of the forest and their battles with the first men, when the green seers turned the trees to warriors. So there's your sea goats. The mountain goats have cloaked themselves in the green sea so that they might pass through undetected. They're green sea goats. I think they represent the others too, for the reasons I pointed out in the Weirwood Compendium 6 episode. Before catching sight of the mountain goat warriors, Asha sees only trees, shadows, moonlight, and snow, which are basically all the things used to describe the others, snowy white shadows who emerge from the trees, blades alive with moonlight. Then the mountain goats, in service to a Night's King figure, Stannis, emerge from the green sea forest to attack Asha, their axes shivering her shield. Then there's the line about the children of the forest turning the trees to warriors, which either applies to the creation of the others, or to the green zombies, or maybe even both, since weirwood magic seems to be involved in the animation of both others and green zombies. So once again, we have the idea of cold monsters coming from the sea, this time associated with goats directly. The idea of the others coming out of the sea or out of the frozen lake to menace and terrorize really does click in with the Owen Oakenshield myth of fighting off the Merlings from the Shield Islands. And since Oakenshield is a Night's Watch castle, like I said, it really does work pretty well. I also find it interesting that House Hewitt, the house that has held dominion over Oakenshield Island down south, has an interesting sigil. It's an oak and iron shield on a field of blue and white wavy stripes. That sigil is clear enough. It denotes their status as people who guard against raiders from the sea with their oaken shields. Traditionally, those raiders from the sea are, of course, the Ironborn, whom we know already have a ton of other symbolism, especially Euron and the Drowned Men. The blue and white coloring of House Hewitt's sigil represents the ocean, of course, but also doubles as a match for the colors of the others, who are the real monsters from the S.E.E. Sea. Oak and iron rings a bell. That's Dunk's mantra, of course. Oak and iron guard me well, or else I'm dead and doomed to hell. Some have observed that oak and iron seems to have a symbolic role of guarding against evil in a song of ice and fire, building on this mantra, and then continuing with other appearances of iron and oak in key places. And now this takes on new meaning when you think about oak and iron shields defending against the others, who come from a frozen hell, surely. Lucifer's frozen lake in the Ninth Circle, to be exact, in case anyone wants to send a postcard. Oak is also the tree of the Summer King in the Oak and Holly King schema, and of course Garth himself is a solar deity and a Summer King. He planted the living oaken seed at High Garden for the descendants of his firstborn son, Garth Gardner, to rule upon, and two of his sons are named after oaks. Of course, that's John the Oak and Owen Oakenshield. So there's a whole lot of oaken going on, is what I'm saying. It makes sense that the oaken Summer King people would defend against, uh, you know, people who symbolize the others. As I mentioned, Oakenshield and the rest of the Shield Islands, Green Shield, Grey Shield, and South Shield, are conquered by the Ironborn, who tend to symbolize the others. Lord Hewitt and his family suffer very badly at Euron's hand, and Euron gives Oakenshield to Newt the Barber. That's G-N-U-T-E, Newt. Now, a newt is an aquatic animal, and newt spelled with a G is almost like goat the barber. No? Newt? Goat? Goat newt? 
Yeah. Well, maybe not. Not sure about that. But the Ironborn are like others, and as it turns out, they rely on both goats and the sea for sustenance, according to the world of ice and fire. The soil of the Iron Islands is thin and stony, more suitable for the grazing of goats than the raising of crops. The Ironborn would surely suffer famine every winter but for the endless bounty of the sea and the fisher folk who reap it. The Ironborn raise goats by the sea, which has to remind us of Prickus and his little sea goat children waiting ashore. And the Ironborn also invade like Merlings. And they believe they descend from Merlings for that matter, so there you have it. Just to put a somewhat random coda on this, let me just point out that the Dothraki are very much analogs to the Ironborn in many ways, and sometimes to the others as well. They are pirates of the green Dothraki Sea that believe it's literally wrong to plant crops in the ground. Think, we do not sow. That's right, the Greyjoys and the Dothraki might get along pretty well, except for the fact that Ironborn do not ride horses. But uh, they got the same philosophy on planting and taking stuff that doesn't belong to them. So, in any case, check out this line from The World of Ice and Fire about the Dothraki sea goats. The Dothraki remain nomads still, a savage and wild people who prefer tents to palaces. Seldom still, the Carls drive their great herds of horses and goats endlessly across their sea, fighting one another when they meet, and occasionally moving beyond the borders of their own land for slaves and plunder. The idea of herding goats endlessly across the sea again reminds us of Prickus, who repeatedly turned back time to try to herd his little sea goats and keep them from leaving the sea. I thought that was pretty cool. And so that is Capricorn and Owen Oakenshield, House of the Sea Goat. One of my favorites, and probably I would say the most fun out of any of these first six, so I hope you enjoyed it. All right, well, that will do it for the first half of our Zodiac Constellations. Now you can see why it took me so long to get this together. 22,000 words just to do half of them. Each one is its own little rabbit hole, what can I say? I've got lots of notes prepped for the other six, but I haven't written them out yet, so it'll probably take me a little bit of time to follow all the trails and write them out. I'll do my best not to leave it hanging for another three years, uh, or anywhere near that long, so hopefully you'll get that episode fairly soon. Anyways, thanks to everyone, especially to all of our Mythical Astronomy patrons, and especially, especially all of our Zodiac patrons. This one was for you. And if you'd like to sign up and get Taurus or Ophiuchus, those are the two slots that are currently open. So, see you again soon, guys. Observes Arion wearing snakeskin scandals. Snakeskin sandals laced up to her. Th-